Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. What do you like listening to? Um. <laughs> Don't Chart music. <laughs> Chart music. Hey, up you pop crazed youngsters, and welcome to the latest episode of Chart Music, the podcast which stalks a random episode of Top of the Pops on the playground, pushes it down, grips its thighs with its powerful front legs, and bums it, and bums it, and bums it, until (laughs) Sir comes along and shoes it out the way. I'm your host, Al Needham, and if I appear to be looming high above you, it is only because I am standing on the shoulders of giants. And this episode, those giants are Taylor Parks. Yeah, hello there. And Simon Price. Hello. Chaps, how are we? Anything popping interesting happening in your lives? Nothing at all. Yeah, I've got laryngitis. Yeah. Oh. It's um I've got some sort of uh, infection which I'm all I'm all medicated and I've decided the best thing to fix a bad throat is to talk for three hours while drinking coffee. Excellent. Simon, you've been up to out? Um, no, I'm just very excited that the World Cup is actually upon us. Um, I spent mm. about two days searching every uh, WH Smith in uh, England and Wales, literally, um, for a copy of When Saturday Comes to get the wall chart. But I've now got a blue yes. tack to my wall and I'm beside myself oh. with excitement. There's one of me here and one of me sat next to me. That's how beside myself Good I am. Good Lord. Because I don't give a fuck. I'm absolutely shocked at how little of a fuck I'm giving about this World Cup. It's really upset me. Why Why is it? Why do you think that is? Well, I, I know a lot of people aren't up for it because it's in Russia. But, you, you know, d- d- to be honest, that means very little because my favourite World Cup of all time is Argentina 1978. And, you know, they weren't exactly the uh, the nicest uh, people in the world at the time. Well, exactly. Yeah. I quite like the retro touch of holding the World Cup in a nasty human rights abusing right wing autocracy. It takes me yeah. back. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I tell you what, though, whatever else can be said about Russia... Uh, at least they've come up with a reasonable World Cup mascot, which is <laughs> yes. apparently beyond most enlightened countries. If uh, <laughs> Footix, uh, Golio, and the genuinely hideous uh, Nick, Ato, and Kaz from Korea God. and Japan in 2002 or anything to go by. This year we've got, um, what's he called? Zabi Vaka. He's a, cu- <laughs> a, a cuddly wolf in ski goggles. Um, nice. It's presumably a heterosexual Russian Orthodox Christian wolf, but uh, yeah. apparently a heartthrob uh, for the furry community, which is it? sort of pl- sort of pleasing, I think. They they yeah. they, they, they like uh, Zabi Vaka and the ones who uh, have a taste for stronger stuff. Uh, Fantasise about bummer dog, <laughs> bummer wolf. <laughs> No, I mean Simon. I, look, me and the World Cup. Yeah. You know, it, it, it's it's been a love thing for so long. I mean, on the morning of, of the opening World Cup game, I always just 
bolt out of bed and just shout World Cup, World Cup, World Cup, World Cup, <laughs> and I, I can't, I can't imagine myself doing that tomorrow because uh, we're recording this the day before the, the World Cup, and um, you know, I mean, New Year's Eve, you know. Every four years, the first thing that comes out of my mouth at midnight is to turn around to my mate and just go, World Cup, yeah. And for this one, I just can't be asked. I think it's it's less to do with it being in Russia and more to do with just being sick of modern football. It just gets rammed up your arse all the time. And it's not it's not special anymore. I mean, you know, with, with this World Cup, um, you know, we've seen everyone. You know, if you wanted to, you could have sat down this last season and seen everything Messi and Ronaldo did. Whereas, you know, back in the day, you saw Johan Cruyff for about 10 seconds on on the ball every now and then. Yeah, but I've got no idea who the South Korea players are, particularly, or Saudi Arabia. There's always going to be some in that you just don't know. I mean, I've mm. um, I've got a bunch of mates in Brighton and we, we do a, a sweepstake draw and I drew out... Japan and South Korea, 250 to 1 and 500 to 1. I'm pretty fucked off about that. But, you know, um, yeah, I I know what you're saying and we're a kind of overexposed football saturation. But there'll always be something absolutely insane that happens in the World Cup. And I'm not going to say it's a level playing field because it's by no means immune to the, you know, Mm. financial machinations which affect club football. But... There, there is something a bit more kind of Olympian about it. And there is, you know, mm. you, you still do get things like Saeed Alawar and, you know, that, scoring that amazing goal for Saudi Arabia. Yeah. There always will be some, some shocks and some upsets. And some, somebody mm. you absolutely hate will get their face rubbed in the shit. You absolutely know it. And it's, oh, and yes. I, I mean, I'm, I'm gutted that Wales aren't there. I, I went. You must be. Yeah. I, uh, because we, we did so well in the Euros and I went to the final game of our qualifying campaign where we got turned over at home by Ireland who and Ireland were awful and they they, they yeah. then went and got knocked out by Denmark in the in the playoff thing um so well if Wales had qualified would you go I would but I was secretly or not so secretly relieved that we failed because the idea of going to Russia I was absolutely shitting it because in France mm-hmm. I was camping. Um, me and my me and my best mate from from school days, uh, we actually went and camped our way around France um, in both senses of the word, and uh, <laughs> um, and and it was just so idyllic and so beautiful. But the idea of trying that in fucking Russia, can you imagine? Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. And would you care to explain what you were, how you were um, attired? Well, for the, I, for I these actually, games? Um, yeah, I. Um, I did because it was the year that uh, uh, that we lost um, uh, David Bowie and Prince. So uh, I did an Aladdin Sane style lightning flash across my face in in red mm. and green for Wales, and yeah. I wrote the word. You were Yaki Dardos, yeah, yeah, you? yeah, yeah. And I wrote the word Wales in eyeliner on my cheek, a la slave when Prince did that. So I was honouring them mm. both with my uh, match day get up. Um, but yeah, the the <laughs> idea of doing that in in, in Russia, um, it was no, it was, yeah, pretty terrifying to be honest so I'm kind of if, if we had to miss a tournament I think it's quite a good one to miss yeah but once I got over the disappointment it was like well okay you know Wales are hardly ever in the fucking tournament so this is just normality mm. now and I usually pick someone else to to support uh, it's I used to love the ex-communist countries or even the still communist countries I, I was always particularly in the 90s I, was, I love watching Bulgaria Romania countries like that and I've also always got a soft spot for Hispanic countries. So, you know, Colombia and Spain themselves. Can't support Spain this year because of what Sergio Ramos, no. Sergio Ramos doing his WWE Smackdown um, <laughs> shoulder dislocation on uh, 
um, on, on, on Liverpool's Mo Salah. Um, so that's out of the question. Um, so I, I think maybe Egypt will be, you know, because of Mo Salah, will be the team that I'm, you know, cheering for. Most of yeah. Because being a freelancer, this is the this is the only benefit nowadays to being a freelancer, isn't it? Well, well, you say that, but it means, you know, I'm I'm not the most motivated and ambitious person at the best of times. This means I'll just get fucking nothing done for a whole month. Yeah. It's great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so before we actually talk about fucking pop music, instead of ranting on about football like some fucking twatty blokes in a pub, it's time once again to give thanks to the latest pop-crazed youngsters who got their hands down the back of their own sofas and kicked in some dollar in the name of chart music. And those people are Mac McClure, Dominic Ellison, Becca Carroll, Paul Fern, Lorna Easton and Stephen Kinsella. Thank you. Thank you so much. And don't forget, if you've been listening to chart music and you've not lobbed any cash over yet, I want you to get out of your chair. I want you to put your hand on the iPhone or tablet or computer or whatever you're listening to this on. And I want you to pledge your money right now. Stop what you're doing. Go to patreon.com slash chart music and do the right thing. We love our Patreon subscribers, don't we? Oh, yeah. Best. (laughs) <laughs> try try not to sound like Johnny Rotten there on the on the Bill Grundy show. Yeah. Oh yes, they really turn us on. <laughs> no, but seriously, thank you. Now nah, then, pop crazy youngsters. At the time of recording, we are only one day away from the World Cup, and uh, yeah, like I said, I'm just not asked. It's like it's like the World Cup's had its hair cut, and I don't fancy it anymore. So, oh come on, pull yourself together. I know, it's going to be I know, brilliant. I know it's it's just it's like not being interested sexually in anything anymore. You know, it's just is this what getting old's like? I'm longing for that day. I'm <laughs> I'm quite into it. I I like the fact that no one anywhere in the world can defend at the yeah. moment, which might make for an entertaining few weeks until the inevitable grim grind of the knockout stage so anyway in an attempt to uh, get me g'd up for the world cup and in commemoration of what's going to happen over the next month or so we have lingered over the quality street tin of old episodes of top of the pops rammed our hands down to the bottom and we've pulled out a very special episode for many reasons because this episode of top of the pops takes us all the way back to may the 6th 1982. First time uh, England have been involved for for in our lifetimes, pretty much. Yeah, yeah. You know, this is one of the another great reason for uh, being a kid in the seventies. You have such low expectations of the England national side, yeah. and the idea of England being in a World Cup that's as fucked up as a man being allowed to be prime minister, wasn't it? <laughs> I've only got the vaguest memories of the 1982 World Cup, um, even though I know I watched some of it. Because I became a, a quite a very casual follower of football for mm. about five or six years when I was a kid, uh, which, as luck would have it, happened to be the uh, five or six worst and most depressing <laughs> years in English football <laughs> history. Uh, but I, I still watch World Cups and FA Cup finals, but they sort of washed over me. Mm. I was probably daydreaming about New York in the 1960s or <laughs> something ridiculous like that. Simon, you were well up for uh, 1982 World Cup, I recall you saying. Yeah, I was. Um, the first World Cup I actually remember was ni- 1978. 
um, yeah, in yeah, Argentina. Yeah. And I loved that yeah. one, but um, I was only yeah. 10 years old at that point. So by... And so you you would have missed a lot of games because they're on late night, weren't they? they Very were, late night. Yeah, absolutely. So a lot of it, I'd have just seen the highlights and, and stuff like that. And, you know, it's just, you know, 78 is a very sort of hazy memory of um, ticker tape falling down from the top of, you know, yeah. stadiums where previously dissidents would have been dropped um, yeah. and, and stuff like that. But um, but 82 was the one that it's, it's in vivid full colour in my mind, you know. Mm. Um, I absolutely loved it. I was obsessed. I mean, it was, it was pretty much the height of my obsession with football anyway. It was, yeah. it was the time when um, my love of pop and football were both at the same peak. Um, right. I, I hadn't yet reached that thing where I had to decide it's one or the other. Um, mm. uh, which, you know, eventually... I'd, because you did at the time, didn't you? Eventually, yeah, yeah. I mean, eventually I, I ditched football for about 10 years, starting from about 84, 85 onwards. But at this point, mm. uh, my bedroom walls, um, there were um, basically three walls I could put posters on because there was windows. Um, and I had two walls of music and one wall of uh, football, mostly Liverpool. Um, and mm. yeah, I was so, so up for this one. Really was. I know that I watched the final on black and white portable <laughs> in the chalet in uh, Butlins in Bognor Oh Regis. man. Nice. <laughs> I still think um, 82 was the best World Cup, or at least it's my favourite World Cup. Um, yeah. Obviously, it's, it's always going to be a you know, personal thing on, on, on your memories of it. You know, probably... You know, people will say 1970 is clearly the best World Cup uh, from an objective mm. uh, from an objective point of view. Of view, but for me, it's uh, 82. Um, I mean, Spain themselves, the Spanish apparently call it El Gran Fracaso, which means the great failure because of how poorly the national team yeah. have performed. But I think they put on a great World Cup, even yes, down they to did. even down to the artwork. Right, yeah. every, every city had a poster by um, a renowned artist, so. Um, the poster for you know the tournament as a whole was by by Juan Miro, um, but there were things. There was this guy called uh, Gerard Titus Carmen did one for uh, Gijon, which was just some goal net black against white, and it looks bleak and really industrial, and it's just really cool. Um, there was um, mm. Jacques Monnery for Vigo was almost vorticist, this player kind of running towards you with a sense of speed and motion. It's brilliant. And um, yeah. uh, Jean-Michel Follon for uh, Zaragoza, um, the pitch becomes a person. And it reminds me of Max Ernst's The Elephant Celeb, if you know what I mean. This kind of, it's, it's pitch with yeah. arms and legs and a head. And, um, oh yeah, I, I, all of that. It, they, they just put so much into it, the Spanish. No, they're weird like that, the Spanish. It's like when you go there, it's the same way that they have this mad idea that you can mix old and new architecture without just obliterating the old um they seem to think that art is like not just a thing for ponces yeah, yeah. Really weird and just in terms of the play i mean there, there were two teams that stood out for me brazil and france yeah so yes brazil you had zico adair falcao socrates tonino cerezo oh yes um, I, I actually named oh, my cat after God. zico that year um <laughs> I, I, I wanted to call him kenny after dalglish but my mum wouldn't allow it <laughs> Um, and then, and then France, <laughs> France. You had you know, Didier Cisse, Jean Tigana, Marius Trezor, Michel Platini, Dominic Rocheteau, all those players. Just fantastic yeah. team. And then just one of you know, just a few players for other teams like Boniek for Poland, um, yeah. Kubias for Peru, although he was better in '78, and people like that. Mm-hmm. And, and 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 the Germans being the baddies, that was that was amazing. Yes. The Germans really rose to the occasion to to be the sort of the, didn't they just? the villains. <laughs> there, there was that. There was the notorious Anschluss. Match, of course. Yes, the, the disgrace of of Gijon, where where um, Austria uh, colluded with them to to eliminate Algeria by letting 
uh, West Germany score one goal and then playing out the remaining 80 minutes, just kicking the ball around yeah. famously. And then, of course, um, Harold Schumacher taking out yes. Patrick Battiston with one of the most shocking, horrendous fouls in football history, yes. almost killing him. Um, yes. Uh, so, I, I yeah, because they were the villain. I basically, I wanted France and Brazil... Uh, or, France or Brazil to win. Italy played not unattractive football. It was kind of no. pragmatic, but with a bit of flair. In fact, it was probably the perfect balance. They, I yeah, mean, Italy probably were the ideal team. They probably did deserve to win. Um, yeah, but yeah, it just from the romantic point of view, France and Brazil were just beautiful to watch. Oh my, I was frothing at the gash to see Brazil because yeah. this was pretty much the last World Cup where Brazil were proper Brazil. They were really Brazil, weren't they? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, even even before the World Cup started, if, you, if you're if having a game of football like in the street, you could just hear kids going, Socrates, goal! <laughs> yeah. And Falcao, that was another great one because you, yeah. you, you kind of like say that when some girl you didn't like walk past. <laughs> But Taylor, I I know I know you're a fan of uh, watching the old World Cups on you know the official oh, yeah. FIFA films. So so even even if you only have dim memories of it at the time, you must. What what are your thoughts about it as a tournament? Eighty two. Yeah, yeah. I'm a I'm a total historian bore about all of this now, including mm. all the years I missed. Um, yeah, eighty two is brilliant because also it was sort of at that point where the gradual speeding up of football had just sort of reached the optimum point where you didn't get games that were just a load of people chasing around. You know, it, it was slow enough to look like old football, but quick enough yeah. to not be boring. And, uh, you know, tactical enough to be interesting, but not, you know, depressingly defensive. And of course, the main thing was, the you know, the scenario, the possible scenario of England meeting Argentina in the knockout stage. Oh, yes. Which is something yeah, yeah. that nobody wanted. My fucking arse, man. I'd have been so <laughs> up for that. And so would the Argentinians, man. And the whole world would have watched it. It's just like, oh, this is going to be fucking brutal. Maradona's head would have exploded at some point. Yeah, it's in the same way as, you know, this This is not the sort of thing we like to see on a football pitch. Bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> So, what was in the news this week? Well, news is still coming out about the sinking of the HMS Sheffield, which happened two days previously. Two Harrier jump jets have gone missing over the South Atlantic. Argentina agreed to the UMP's proposals over the Falklands, while the UK does not. Tam Payton, former manager of the Bay City Rollers, is jailed for three years on indecency charges in Edinburgh, and the 70s are officially dead. Film of the assassination attempt on Ronald Reagan is screened at the trial of John Hinckley in Washington. The world middleweight title bout between Marvin Hagler and Thomas Hearns is postponed after Hearns injures his hand in training. But the big news this week is that Adam and the Ants have split up. But the even bigger news this week is that Mark Almond has agreed to pose nude in a photo shoot and his label have had to shell out two grand to ensure the general public never gets to see them. <laughs> oh, Mark, what will you do next? I didn't know about that. Why? I've, I've just spent months writing um, the booklet for Soft Cell's... Um, uh, yes, know, you have. Uh, box set, the career-spanning box set. And I didn't know that. I don't know how that's escaped my attention. Oh, well, they hid it very well then. Maybe the box set needs to have that sort of, that image hidden on one of the discs, a kind of yeah. Easter egg, you know. <laughs> <laughs> on the cover of The Enemy this week is Ede out of Iron Maiden. 
on the cover of Smash Hits, Nick Haywood. The number one LP in the UK is Barre, live in Britain by Barry Manilow. Complete Madness is number two, and 1982 by Status Quo is number three. Over in the USA, the number one single is I Love Rock and Roll by Joan Jett and the Blackhearts, and the number one LP is Chariots of Fire by Vangelis. So, chaps, what were we doing in May of 1982? Because there was this kind of war thing going on at the time. I was, by this point, I was 14 years old. I was, uh, you know, still at school, Barry Boy's comp in the third Mm. year, I think. Um, And I was very very politicised. I'd been politicised by pop, really. Um, And I was very Labour um, and very pacifist and a member of CND and all of that. So I'd I'd be watching the unfolding events in the South Atlantic with increasing despair Mm. uh, because I could see the way that the mood of the country was going. It's not as if I had any great hopes for Michael Foote winning the next election Mm. anyway, but there seemed to be some chance that people were so disenchanted with... Uh, you know, mass unemployment and, and Thatcherism. That there might be a way of overturning the Tories. But yeah. when 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 the war happened, um, game just, over. It was it was over. Game over. Um, it was the first um, the first TV war in Britain. I think really. You know, the Americans they will say Vietnam was their first televised war. I think you know for, for British people, this was the first one where we were following events in real time on telly. You're kind of right, but I've, I've been looking into this, and apparently. Uh, it was 57 days into the war before we saw actual recent footage of the war going on. The Ministry of Defence just absolutely threw the blanket over it in in a way that you just couldn't do today. Yeah, I remember, I remember there were these really weird press conferences. There was that guy, John Knott, who was... Uh, was he the, the defence secretary? He was certainly from the Ministry. He was the defence secretary, but the, the bloke you're thinking of is it called Ian MacDonald. Right. Who, who was a bit like... a bespectacled funeral director. Yeah, and had a really weird manner um, and, and announce, yes. announcing... Uh, yeah, I, actually, you're right, aren't, aren't you? Because there was that thing of uh, the the BBC guy saying, I counted them all out and I counted them all back because he, yeah. because of, of the restrictions on it. But but eventually, you know, we started seeing what was going on. And yeah. So this, this episode was only uh, about three days after the sinking of the Belgrano um, mm. uh, uh, with the loss of 275 lives. And of course... Um, prompting the Sun's vile headline, Gotcha. And yeah. Um, and we now know, um, and we, we learned at some point after this, that the ship was outside the total exclusion zone, which Britain had un- yeah. unilaterally declared around the Falklands. And not only that, but sailing away from the area. Yeah. Um, Thatcher, only a few weeks after this episode, was taken to task on Nationwide by by a, a viewer. Um, I'm sure you've all seen, yeah. seen that amazing footage. But... Um, all, all of this stuff would would have been combining to um, fuel both my kind of uh, outrage and absolute despair about the, about you know the way the country was, was going and, and the hope of anything changing really. Still, it's nice to see the fascists kicked off British soil. Yes, <laughs> that's the other view. <laughs> I was reporting on it. It was me and Max Hastings in a <laughs> foot race to Port Stanley, but I I tripped over a molehill. What did it mean to you, Taylor, being a bit younger? Nothing, nothing, no, no. I, you know, I, I was 10, too young for the draft. Because <laughs> <laughs> we were well worried about it at first until we realised that the Falkland Islands were fucking miles away. It was that typical Adrian Mole thing. Were you one of those people who thought it was in Scotland? Yes, yes. <laughs> for about for about an hour. <laughs> 
and it was it was it was really strange because you know I I've been raised on battle comic and commando and all this kind of stuff and all of a sudden oh there's a war that's in the here and now and so it was you know it was all a bit weirdly exciting for a time and then it got really boring because it took them six weeks to get there and then people started dying and it's like oh this this ain't so much fun anymore yeah i mean i've got family members who are there who um were yeah yeah yeah. um and um even though they were never diagnosed with PTSD or anything I, I think it's pretty clear that that they they did have that um pretty pretty horrific um and um the thing is you oh you you, you say it was it was a war in our lifetime um you weren't allowed to call it a war were you at the time it was the conflict the Falklands conflict yes that was the sort of official line on it wasn't it well it was professional soldiers versus conscripts yeah. which mm. is always a bit of a turkey shoot I don't think they were very good the Argentine army <laughs> they didn't really want to be there no. Whereas, no. you know, at least 75% of our boys really, really did want to be there, at least until they got there. Um, mm. So, you know, yeah, that that always tends to tip the balance. So uh, I know for a fact that I'd missed this episode of Top of the Pops when it first came out because I was in Germany at the time. I was uh, on a school exchange in a village called Kirsp near Cologne. And uh, yeah, that was it was a very weird experience. Uh, I was, you know, I was pretty immature for 14 for a kickoff. And so I was immediately massively homesick. And I was pretty much intimidated by the realisation that maybe Britain wasn't the greatest country in the world after all, because this village was fucking lovely. <laughs> it was like, it was like high mat. And the first Monday we were there, we went to their school and it was fucking enormous. It was like the breakfast club. And they all started at eight o'clock and they all had subjects like technic and stuff like that. And, you know, we're in the kind of like auditorium and it's absolutely fucking massive. And it's like, oh shit, these people are are a bit advanced. Yeah. And we went to, you know, we got tours of factories and stuff, which was pretty boring. But looking back on it, it's like, oh, fucking hell, what the fuck are we going to show them when they come here? Because we ain't got no factories anymore. And everyone was really nice. And uh, the problem was, though, my partner... Um, he was in hospital at the time. Um, and so I just spent a lot of time on my own and, uh, I was d- just spent a lot of time in his room going through his record collection. And the, the three albums I played to death in those two weeks were, um, Kings of the Wild Frontier by Adam and the Ants, yeah. which I hadn't heard all the way through. And I loved that. Yeah. Um, I think it was October by U2. Mm-hmm which I wasn't massively keen on. But he had this album by a German band called Extra Bright, uh, <laughs> which was called, um, oh, what was it called? Yeah, he had this album called um, uh, Welt, Welt Land Was für Manner by Extra Bright, which was fucking mint. It was uh, Das Presidentis Tote. That's a fucking great song. And uh, so, yeah, so I spent a lot of time listening to them and going through his, uh, his uh, back copies of Bravo which I've mentioned before, yeah. which had lots of uh, lots of pictures of uh, kind of semi-naked teenage girls in it, which was all right at the time, you know, because I was one, a boy, obviously. <laughs> the weird thing was we were finding out news about the Falklands War like hours before I would have done if I was in Britain. I remember his parents knocking on the door and saying, sitting me down and saying, uh, you know, we've just heard that the, the HMS Sheffield has been sunk. And I just went, Scheiße. <laughs> oh, the other thing about Germany, which did my head in, was uh, I'd just turned 14 the, the, the Saturday before, and uh, I was allowed to go in pubs all of a sudden. Wow. 
So I did a lot of that, but you had to be 18 to go into amusement arcades, which was uh, which was a bit wrong in yeah. my mind because I was dead good at Donkey Kong and wanted to show off to my new German friends. No, they they got their priorities right. Yeah, yeah, they did. Yeah, and of course when you know afterwards, I, j- I just thought, oh fucking hell, what are we going to show them when they come to our school? And the the look on their faces when they got to our comprehensive school, it was like, what the fuck are these people like? And you know, we we just ended up taking them to Alton Towers. So what else was on telly this day? Well, BBC One starts the day with schools programmes, followed by Pebble Mill at One, Chock-A-Block, You and Me, more schools programmes, then Play School, The Drag Pack, The Littlest Hobo, Blue Peter, BBC News, Regional News in Your Area, and then Nationwide. At the moment, Tomorrow's World is showing us how to bring a golf course into your living room. Yeah, hang on a minute, hang on a minute. You gloss over these schools programmes. I had a look at the TV listings for this day. Oh, uh, sorry. And at seven and at seven thirty AM there was a open university programme called Aluminium in Linemouth. Uh, set in the glittering world of smelting in a factory near Berwick upon Tweed. Um I think we should do a podcast about that. Yeah, the golden age of television. Yeah, it's three and a half hours. Leave them, leave them screaming for more. BBC Two was run Play School and then shut down for an hour and a half. And then it goes over to Sheffield for the World Snooker Championships. Then there's racing at Chester. Berlin Siedlungen, an open university documentary about German pre-war housing estates. Then Buck Rogers, The Great Egg Race. Sorry, mate, I didn't see you. An educational series for young motorcyclists. More snooker (laughs) and is currently running the drama series County Hall about a county hall. ITV has transmitted schools programmes, Crown Court, Afternoon Plus, The Cuckoo Waltz, Jangles, Sport Bel-Air, University Challenge, The News at 5.45, Regional News in Your Area, Crossroads, and is currently running Emmerdale Farm. Oh, just just listening to Ooh. the names of those afternoon TV programmes just yeah. makes me want to close the curtains and start masturbating. <laughs> <laughs> All right then, pop craze youngsters, it's time to go way back to May of 1982. Don't forget, we may coat down your favourite band or artist, but we never forget, they've been on top of the pops more than we have. It's the evening of May the 6th, 1982, and Top of the Pops is two years into a revamp instigated by Michael Hull, which has seen Legs & Co. replaced by Zoo, Audible Audience Sounds, Flags and Balloons, and in this episode we're going to see the final new element. Because from May of 1981, and on an occasional basis, Top of the Pops returns to its roots and goes live. The main reason for this is because after a bank holiday, the release of the new chart back then was moved from Tuesday to Wednesday, meaning that the recording on Wednesday involved massive amounts of guesswork as to what was going to go up and down. 
It also gave Top of the Pops the opportunity to try out a few special episodes, which we'll be covering in due course, but it mainly gave Top of the Pops the opportunity to bang on relentlessly about how live and vital and wow they were. Chaps, did the live shows do anything for you? Were you that bothered? No. Um, I Mm. think that, you know, uh, I would only have perceived it as songs I like sounding a bit worse than they ought to, rather than, oh, wow, this is, you know, crackling and fizzing with electricity right before my eyes. Do you know what I mean? Exactly, yeah. And, you know, people always go on about authenticity in music. And at that time, and and, and indeed now, to, to my mind, authenticity means whatever you're doing sounds the same as the record. That's what I like. That's what I want to hear. Yeah, it even used to upset me the first few gigs I went to that yeah. um, that there were um, kind of cables everywhere going from microphones and coming out of guitars and just the stage was strewn with just stuff. Um, yeah. Whereas, you know, to me, um, performance footage usually involved people with nothing plugged in at all playing yeah. on a kind of clean white surface, <laughs> you know, because that's what videos used to look like. Um, so, so yeah, the, the, the whole kind of fetishization of of live and of things being a bit dirty and, and cable strewn everywhere just didn't didn't do it for me, I have to say. Yeah. I wanted Top of the Pops to be Top of the Pops and basically be a visual jukebox of what's in the top 40 or top 30. Yeah. Yeah. So your host for this week is... Simon Bates, who is, as always, in the 9 to 11.30 slot on Radio 1... This week before Dave Lee Travis and after a week-long breakfast show series called Three Men in a Boat, where Mike Reed, Paul Gambaccina and Noel Edmonds spend a week sailing up the Thames in a narrowboat from Hampton Court to Oxford. Where are the Argentinian exocets when you need them? Do you know what I mean? <laughs> Has there ever been a good bait? I was thinking about this the other day. There's Simon, Ken, uh, Norman... Mm. Uh, blaster blaster yes uh, mick i mean yeah i suppose there's nick rhodes mm. there was our school geography teacher mr bates um uh. who um who turned up round about this time in fact and we gave him absolute hell as you can imagine and i'm pretty <laughs> sure the poor guy must have had a nervous breakdown yeah, you'd think I, if you were working at the deed pole office in those days, it's like the phones just never stop. You know, it's another teacher called Bates. <laughs> I can actually, I, I, I can even hear his voice in my head right now going, um, Simon Price, I might have known. Um, if, if, if ever, you know, something, something wrong had happened in the, in the room. I was always wrongly getting the blame, but quite often correctly getting the blame as well. I've been reading uh, Margrave of the Marchers, the uh, the John Peel biography of late, and, uh, you know, I, I was quite uh, interested to learn that there's many a mention of uh, of Simon, of Symes, if you will, in there. Uh, th- there's a quote from his wife that says, on the 8th of February, 1972, John had written in his diary that Simon was a nice man. A decade later, John was plotting with Kid Jensen to beat up Simon in the BBC car park. <laughs> which is something that we've already discussed. But it goes on to say that one of John Peel and Andy Kershaw's most mischievous adventures was our special journey to catch Simon Bates in pantomime in High Wycombe, where he was performing in Aladdin alongside some minor cast member from The Bill and George Zippy and Bungle from Rainbow. <laughs> <laughs> 
What an experience it was to see Aladdin holding a knife to Simon Bates's throat and to feel everyone in the theatre baying most authentically for blood. Finally, Andy could stand the suspense no longer and shouted, Oh, for God's sake, just do it. <laughs> Simon Bates on and Rainbow Man, that's a combination. Yeah, I don't know though. I think I'd rather be locked in a lift with Bates than Kershaw for that. You know, if we're going to talk about that, but <laughs> the hardest man on the island. Christ, <laughs> I just find Simon Bates an aggressively mainstream figure around this time. I find his presence on top of the pops is a kind of incursion into our world. It's like if you're um, playing with your mates in the playground and a teacher comes around the corner, just sort of like lurking there, not saying anything, just sort of like making their presence known. You yeah. know, like, don't have too much fun because I'm here. Yes. Um, that's, that's, that's how Bates is to me. Don't know about you. Yeah. But, but possibly they might think, well, look, it's a live show and, you know, we're broadcasting under wartime conditions. And at any moment, you know, they might have to cut the show and have Ian McDonald on again. Let's have someone who looks a bit like him to just ease the audience <laughs> in. Yeah. Let's have someone with the air of a desk sergeant that never got promotion. Mm. Uh, first tonight, of course, we're live. We've got soccer stars and we've got rock stars. Kevin Keegan, Frank Gray. Kevin, first of all, how are you? Fine, thank you. Look, well, back's well. The back's well. And yeah. you're going to sing for us later? This doctor says as long as don't sing too high, it should be all right. <laughs> okay, good luck. We've also got some great stars, like this gentleman with his newish single. It's Junior. And Mama used to say. We are greeted with the sight of Bates wearing an England scarf, a Tartan scarf and a Tottenham Hotspur scarf at the same time. If this show was made today, Bates will be wearing a third, third and third scarf, <laughs> but he isn't because football wasn't so cuntish then. <laughs> Beside him is Frank Gray of Leeds United in Scotland and the welcome return of Keggy Keegle to <laughs> Top of the Pops. Oh, Keggy like he used to be, if you will. The great thing about this is that Keegan only has one little bit of chat, right? He just has yes. one little gag he's got to do and he muffs it in a in an mm. eerie foreshadowing of his eventual contribution to England's <laughs> 1982 World Cup campaign. Yeah. Yeah. This episode of Top of the Pops is actually longer than Kevin Keegan's um, contribution to England at the World Cup. <laughs> yeah. By nine minutes. <laughs> so he gets this joke out, and of course it gets the response it would have got if he'd told it at a seance. Bates asks Keggy about the most important issue affecting our country at the moment, the condition of his back, which he injured while he was in the bath a few weeks previously. Keegle replies, fine, thank you, a lot, well, the back's well. <laughs> <laughs> don't give up the day job <laughs> and Bates completely ignores Frank Gray who let us remember has won one more European Cup than Keegan there's also that bit where Keegan goes as long as I don't sing too high yes. I'll be alright and, and I, yeah I feel really bad for Frank Gray mm. who's just you know he just sort of smiles there and doesn't get a word in and I'm you know maybe this was the seed that, that led to you know the, the Scottish nationalist movement mm. wanting, a, you know, wanting a referendum because, yeah, it's a bit outrageous, really. Yeah. But at least he doesn't have to talk to Simon Bates. Yes. Who does all these links with the same kind of cheery distance that he presumably learnt when wanking off pigs yes. for money. 
I'm pretty certain he doesn't like football. I get the feeling Simon Bates is a man. He doesn't hate football either. It's just it's not on his radar. He just doesn't at all. know anything about it. Yeah. Um, he's just totally there doing a job with scarves draped around his neck at the last minute. Um, yeah. And I mean, he he actually, you know, he, he fluffs a few of the introductions to, to the football songs. Yes, so, he does. Yeah. So oh, yeah, I, I just, just get the impression that it's it's a total other world. It's, it's irrelevant to him. Football's not part of his world at all. Did you no. get that impression? Yes, definitely. Yeah. yeah. One or two definite clues. Finally, Bates introduces the first act of the night. Mama used to say, by Junior. Born in Clapham in 1957, Norman Washington Giscombe was a backing singer for Lynx when he signed as a solo artist to Mercury Records in 1981. His debut single, Get Up and Dance, failed to chart, and by the time this single came out in December of 1981, he'd changed his name to Junior, but again, it flopped. However, it was remixed in America and it sold like a bastard, getting to number two in the US R&B chart and number 30 on the Billboard chart, resulting in him becoming the second British act and the first British black singer to appear on Soul Train. We know who the first British singer was, don't we? David Bowie. Of course. (laughs) I'm joking, of course. (laughs) Right, I quit. I quit. I resign. (laughs) It was... None of this Bowie nonsense. (laughs) (laughs) It was subsequently re-released in the UK and it's a new entry in the top 40 this week, up from number 41 to number 31. Well, chaps, this is going out live on a week when the country is in crisis. So please explain to the pop craze youngsters how Top of the Pops have, have reacted to this. It's the same old flags and balloon shit, isn't it? Yeah. Don't they know there's a war on? Yeah, and uh, Zoo are in full effect. Um, oh, yes, they are, I must are, admit, yes. I found myself really interested in one particular dancer who I later realised with a chill is downtown Julie Brown. Um, yes. Who's wearing a shiny rara skirt, frilly knickers and hook and eye boots with a giant sort of sweet wrapper bow in her hair. Like, yes. Uh, it's like looking like the courtesan of a, a Victorian sugar magnate. Um, <laughs> and, yeah, I mean, she looks pretty good, I think. But yeah, the uh, mm. the thing you do notice about Zoo is the horrific faux enthusiasm. Um, yeah, where they sort of what it is they're like twirling and whooping like they're on five second animation loops. Like there's no connection. Yes. Like there's no connection between their antics and the record. Right. So you think exactly, like at eight yeah. o'clock the studio empties and they're still there just twisting in empty <laughs> space. Yes. <till> someone... <laughs> just waiting for the key to run down. <laughs> and also it's it's quite hard to <laughs> distinguish the um, exact dividing line between the zoo members and just kind of general 80s people um, in, in Ra yeah. Roskirts. Mm. I think there's a three-tier system in yeah. operation here because zoo, yes. the named members of zoo um, are recognisable. Um, you can find their pictures on the internet and put names to faces. Mm. Then there's a load of people who are clearly just members of the general public. But there's a sort of intermediate section of people who will who will turn up later and we can talk about then. But um, mm. they're not quite zoo, but they're not quite you. They're kind of, do you think they're kind of like hand-picked yeah. London clubbers, like trendy types? Scenesters, if you will. Yeah, in the way that in the 60s, um, they used to send scouts to, you know... Um, 
swinging London clubs to get people in, in the audience for Ready, Steady, Go and yeah. stuff like that. What, one of yeah, whom was yeah, Gary yeah. Glitter. <clears throat> right, yeah, yeah. yeah. But um, yeah, I, I, I do buy into Taylor's three-tier system there. Um, I think maybe the, the bottom feeders are the ones who are wearing dunce hats and yes. crepe paper fezzes in this footage. Yes, um, yes. <laughs> yes. But um, also, uh, there's, there's something about 1982, which in some ways I think is the most 80s year of the 80s. I think we've talked about 1973 being the most 70s year of the 70s. Um, by 82, um, pretty much any um, lingering uh, post-punk abrasiveness uh, had been smoothed out. And even colour-wise... Uh, it's it's very much kind of um, bright yellows and bright greens. And um, I think of it as kind of one long Saturday. That's what 1982 is to me, uh, despite all the war and all that kind of stuff. It was it was an enjoyable year, but that that kind of that kind of edge of 81 and 80 had gone. It was basically it was the past the duchy year. That's the iconic song of 82. <laughs> yes. It's past the duchy. That's the year it is. Um, it's It's a kind of. Fairly bland but enjoyable, catch up on your chips kind of experience. Nineteen eighty two, and I think you can see that in in the audience here, and the way it's filmed, you you can't help but um, take notice of the audience because um, it's it's a while before you even can focus in on 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 Junior. Yeah, he's he's. I mean, there's there's no band for starters. He's on no. he's on a stage that's the shape of the logo of the Italian sportswear firm Erea. Yes, um, very good. Uh, yeah. And uh, there's this massive kind of big yellow top of the pops flag being waved behind, which looks and a red vaguely, one as well. Yeah, it looks looks vaguely kind of fascistic. Um, yeah, well, it's, I, to me, it looked like they were just about to storm the Reichstag. <laughs> yeah, and um, I noticed that um, the dancers are mouthing the words, and I, I don't know if that's because yeah. they've been rehearsing all day, or has the song been around a while and it's like you know it's now at the point where it's it's ingrained in the sort of fabric of, of British life for a few weeks. I think um, that's Sue being cunts, to be honest with oh, you. Okay, right. They're yeah, trying to um, you know, grab a bit of the spotlight for themselves, yeah. Yeah. Because but, um, to, to my mind they carry on like 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 a Smarties advert. Yeah. But I with mean, grown ups. Or or the mini pops. Yeah. I mean it's interesting you mentioned a brand of chocolate because they do look like quality street rappers yes. after them, you know, the way they dress. Yeah, there's some um, fucking awful outfits, but we'll 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 touch on those later on. Th- this is probably a controversial view but i don't love this song i don't I, yeah i'm sorry it's sorry. i don't know i mean for a start this performance doesn't do it any favors because as you say it is live and his voice does sound yeah. quite kind of reedy and flimsy in this performance um but yeah. the i think the sort of ounce of enjoyment that me and my mates used to squeeze out of this record was just doing an impression of the growly bit that mama used to say and all that kind of stuff yes. in the playground just take the piss out of that but yeah, it's not much of a growl, is it? He sounds like uh, an irritated pug. <laughs> <laughs> I fucking love this song. I loved it then, and I love it now. Well, go on, tell us, tell us why. Why is it? Well, why is because it so great? I mean, right from the the opening to the opening bars of the song, to me, sound like the sun piercing through a fucking black cloud. It's just it just reminds me of being young and being fourteen. And it's the summer holidays, or the summer holidays are about to happen, and everything's fucking wonderful. And it's 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 a fucking brilliant song to my mind. And that's it. In a way, I sort I sort of know I know you're right, but I don't know why I don't love it. Yeah, it ought to be the sort of thing I love. But yeah. I think it would be weird to dislike this record 
because there's nothing to dislike. But it, with a lot of records and people where there's nothing to dislike, I find it hard to feel anything at all about it. It's sort of fluid and rubbery in a fairly appealing way. And although it is very South London, it doesn't sound too chintzy or or slimy. It just sort of uh, it just washes over me like air, really. It. Also, it's the sort of like South of England R and B or sort of quasi Brit funk that doesn't bring anything unique to the American template. It's like you listen to something like Southern Freeze, and it's distinctively British and unusual. And you don't think, oh, this would be better if it was an American record. But that's precisely what I think about this one. Right. Um, I mean, I can see why the Americans went for it when you when you put it like that, Taylor, because um, it is it is so. Well, obviously, the, the the elephant in the room is, is Stevie Wonder. It's trying to be a Stevie Wonder record, mm. and I, I think it's a sort of record that American audiences maybe wished Stevie Wonder was still making, yeah, as as opposed to what he was still making. Without wanting to spoil or anything for the end of the episode, um, do you know what I mean? So, so yeah, basically, it's 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 like uh, I don't know when when uh, maybe Beatles fans in the seventies had the methadone of ELO, and I love ELO, but. Maybe there's a better comparison you can make, but you know what I'm saying. Mm. It's it's basically it's, it's methadone for when Stevie Wonder was any good. Mm. Yeah, and he doesn't he doesn't sell it. His voice isn't great. I was watching this. I thought if this is junior, I'd hate to hear senior. <laughs> but I have to say that because it's the keep in keeping with the World Cup theme. Because this was the one funny thing that Ron Atkinson ever said in the <laughs> 1998 World Cup when the Brazilian defender Junior Baiano came on the screen. He was a hulking man mounted. <laughs> and Ron Atkinson said, if that's Junior Baiano, I'd hate to see Senior Baiano. And uh, so now every time I hear of anyone who has Junior in their name, I can't resist it. <laughs> but I was watching this clip. His hair has got the same frosted sparkle as yeah. people's clothes in Camberwick Green. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's, like, it's like marzipan. Um, yeah. And he's got that look, which was briefly popular with British black yes. guys, right? That kind of, it's like an old fashioned cycling helmet hair mm. with like big glasses yeah. on the end of the nose. Like a, Very like similar a, to David uh, Grant at the time. Yeah, David Grant, a couple of musical youth. Yes. A um, couple of other people. It seemed totally bizarre to me that you could be a young black dude into music, supposedly a bit hip, and choose to make yourself look like a black professor yaffle it, it really baffled me um although it's not so bad here because he is surrounded by uh people from the 21st century dressed ironically for an 80s night yes so he, he looks a bit, he looks quite cool by comparison yes he does and I, I think the thing that appealed to me as well was the lyrical content which was essentially don't grow up it's shit which was something I was quite open to at the time because I was in no I was in no rush to grow up. Yeah. Well, my mama used to say, "Take your coat off, or you won't feel the benefit." Yes. And, uh, <laughs> yes. and this is my house, and for as long as you live here, you you follow my rules, which is, <laughs> is far less useful than Junior's mama or Smokey yeah. Robinson's. My mum used to say, "If you don't do this, that, or the other, it'll be the rock you perish on." Oh. <laughs> that's, that's a that's that's a weird poetic phrase. I don't know where she picked it up yeah. from, but she used to say that a lot. Yeah, but my <laughs> mum used to say, "You've shit the nest with me now." 
<laughs> but you know, talking about families, this is one song that I really need to uh, I need to play or sing at my niece because she's going through this thing now and she needs to take her time and not rush to get old. Because uh, the other week she told her mum uh, she wanted a bra and uh, she's six. And uh, my me, me sister said, why? And he says, oh, well, because all my mates want a bra because of Barbie. And her mum said, no, you're not having that. So she basically went upstairs and made her own bra. <laughs> um, she, she, went, she went in her bedroom and she got a pair of drawers and she cut a hole in the gusset, put her head through it, put her arms through the leg holes, and my sister just caught her going out the door with this pants bra on and her heels. Which sounds like one of the outfits that Zoo are wearing, to be fair. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, another thing, going back to previous episodes, there we go, ladies. You know, if you do soil a bra, just keep some nail scissors with you. <laughs> there we go. That's the kind of uh, British ingenuity we'll, we'll need in a post-Brexit world. So, the following week, Mama used to say, soared 13 places to number 18 and would eventually get to number 7 for two weeks in June of this year. The follow-up, Too Late, got to number 20 in August of this year and he went on to be presented with the Billboard Best Newcomer of 1982 by James Brown. He contributed to the Beverly Hills Cop soundtrack. He was a member of the Council Collective with Jimmy Ruffin and Paul Weller for the single Soul Deep, which got to number 24 in December of 1984. He teamed up with Kim Wilde and got another step closer to you to number 6 in May of 1987. And he wrote songs for the Lighthouse Family and Philip Bailey. He also allowed his nephew Richard Blackwood to desecrate his finest three minutes when Mama Who Da Man got to number three. And he made his last appearance on the charts with Flip and Phil when Irish Blue got to number 20 in 2004. He also sang Move On Up at the Labour Party rally in Sheffield in 1992. <laughs> All right. Yeah, it's his fault. singing live as mama used to say now here's the new lineup for depeche mode and it's a beautiful new song which has just got inside the 40. next week it'll chart have a listen to depeche mode over here they're sounding really terrific as always but this is the way their new lineup looks. Bates, proudly wearing his England scarf featuring Bulldog Bobby, the England 1982 World Cup mascot that was roundly criticised for being well Brexit at a time when the National Front were openly selling their youth magazine Bulldog outside football grounds, is surrounded by zoo wankers as he invites us to check out a beautiful new song by a band who he claims is just outside the charts. The band Depeche Mode, the song the meaning of love. 
We've already discussed Depeche Mode in Chart Music number 8 when they did Just Can't Get Enough, but since then they've had to deal with the departure of main songwriter Vince Clark in November of 1981 when he was dissatisfied with touring, dissatisfied with the direction the band was taking, and according to Dave Garn, dissatisfied with the amount of letters he was receiving from fans asking him what his favourite colour of socks were. While he went off to form Yazoo with Alison Moyer, and their debut single Only You is currently up to number 14 this week, the band regrouped, drafted in Alan Wilder, and released their first single not written by Clark, See You, which got to number 6 in March of this year, their highest ever chart position. This is the follow-up, and it's a new entry this week at number 34, even though Bates claims it's just outside the charts, obviously. He's referring to the top 30, which Top of the Pops is currently adhering to. Yes, weird that, isn't it? I noticed that. So in Top of the Pops world, it hasn't charted unless it's in the 30. So there's this weird dissonance between the TV yeah. and the radio branches of the BBC. When BBC Radio 1, it was yes. all about the top 40. It's yeah, a really odd thing to say. That struck me. Yeah, it wouldn't be for another few years before they got into the top 40. I think it was around about 85 or something. So yeah, Dave, Dave gone. The, the, all this recent band upheaval is really taking it out of him because now, you know, he looks 13 as opposed to the 12 <laughs> he looked the last time we saw him. Yeah, but doesn't Alan Wilder, who's just joined, look so happy? Mm. He looks delighted to be there in his, in his brown leather collarless trouser suit. With the short sleeve yeah. jacket, does this little cheeky bit of mugging and frogging for the delectation of the camera? <laughs> they do look very weird. For his yeah. mum, bless Martin him. Martin Gore's got a, a a brown leather jerkin, like a like a blacksmith. Yes. they all look like this. They look like escapees yeah. from uh, Blist's Hill Museum or somewhere like that. Like they stand there from <laughs> yes. nine to five greeting visitors. Good day, kind sir. Like trying to hide their watch, you know. It's a it's a yes. poor look. It is a poor look. You're supposed to think Yeah. I guess you're supposed to think look at the the futuristic artisans toiling at their mm. corks, you know. But really yes. you just think, you know, take your glowing tongs and fuck off back to Colebrookdale. <laughs> but I like this. I like this. The best thing for me about this record is that it's so dated. Um mm. I'm not really that interested in the song not massively impressed by much about it except that amazingly thin and uncool arrangement with the synths that sound like toys and the sort of pitiful amateurish backing vocals i love that stuff because it's a great example of people using electronics to sound more human Um, Mm. and there's something really fragile and homemade and intimate about this sound that really appeals to me. Um, and I love the ending as well. They do an early Beatles-style yes. hard ending. Yes, with like a, an augmented sixth, isn't it? Yeah, yeah it's like you just add your little finger to the chord. Um, and yeah, George Harrison called it the naughty chord. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not what you expect on a record like this at all, which is great. Yeah, yeah. And I always rag on Martin Gore's excruciating lyrics, but I have to say... Uh, this song has one of the best opening lines of 1982, which is, I've read more than a hundred books. <laughs> it's fantastic. So yeah, oh, actually, I've read 109 books. Yeah. If you include the, the Highway Code and yes. the Operator's Manual for the Roland SH1. But Depeche Mode, I was never asked about them. 
and not many people in my school were, to be honest. A few girls were. And I, I, I do remember there was a, a period where some lads I knew were thinking of turning futurist, as we called them. And they'd have those uh, black or grey shirts with the buttons down the side. But I remember, I do remember a lot of them um, in the playground saying that they weren't futurists anymore after they heard the rumour about Mark Almond. <laughs> I'm not a futurist anymore. It's all in the past. Yes. <laughs> I think by, the, by 1982, the idea of a synth band, it, it, to my mind, it seemed dated. You think? Well, yeah, to, to my 14-year-old comprehensive school mind, it was oh, okay. all, you know, it was all so passe. But what did you think that we were moving on to? What was the next thing um, in your mind? Musical youth, basically. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I mean, they've still got, they've still got the tape machine, um, which would have been, which would have been massively daring, uh, you know, a, a couple of years ago. But by this time, it's like, well, we know you're miming, so it's not like the drum pattern's massively complicated. Why can't you just bang on some No, I mean, you're right. The, the, the reel-to-reel tape machine was a, a well-worn act of provocation by this point because mm. I think OMD yeah. and the Human League and various other people had yeah. had already done it, probably Depeche themselves. Um, but they've, they've gone that one step further with it, haven't they? Because yes. um, to rub it in, yes. they've, they've got a Duracell bunny on top of yes. theirs playing the drums, yes. which is, you know, just making yeah. a joke out of the fact that everything's electronic. Did I see uh, an Atom Craft 9 Dank sticker on the bass drum of that <laughs> oh, bunny? Really? Yeah, it's, it looked yellow. And, you know, to my mind, any yellow sticker before 1984 was Atom Craft 9 Dank. Yeah, yeah. I think it's just a painted pink heart. Oh. Sorry to disappoint. But no. I, I, I because, see the... Because um, after 1984, of course, it would have been, you know, Cole Not Dole. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Big, I, big, big era for yellow stickers. <laughs> I do see the um, reel-to-reel tape machine and the provocation implied by that as similar in a way to that Beatles sixth chord that they they end the song with um mm. because in a way uh, that that kind of emphasizes the classicism of their songwriting as contrasted with the you know futurism of of the technology that they're using yeah, to make yeah, it yeah. i think that's why that chord is there it's almost a little joke and i think mm. you know the the real to real tape machine is is of a piece with that but yeah. i i agree with you al that this is one of their lesser singles. It's, you know, one of their yeah. most got nothing-y, forgettable singles. They they haven't, by this point, they haven't yet found their way in the post-Vince Clark era. Um, yeah. I mean, obviously, CU was great, but they were very hit and miss for a while, for a few mm. years. And for once, I think democracy worked. I think the public got it right with Depeche Mode for quite a few years because after Vince left for the first few years, the ones that made the top 10 were bangers. So we're talking about See You, Everything Counts, People Are People, Master and Servant, right? Yeah. And the ones that missed the top 10 were forgettable. So that's Meaning of Love, Leaving Silence, Get the Balance Right, Christ, yeah. and Love in Itself, and so on. And that, that theory yeah. lasts for quite a while. It only really breaks down in the late 80s when you've got really good singles like A Question of Time and Never Let Me Down Again and Personal Jesus, which missed the top 10, but, you know, mm. but were obviously amazing. Um, it's it's weird. And they had about forty three chart singles. Never got to the top three ever. Is that right? I, yeah, I, that's I mental, think, isn't it? I think in a way that highlights something about Depeche Mode. It, well, this, the, the theory I had about them was that uh, nobody absolutely loved them, but everybody kind of quite liked them. So people took Depeche Mode mm. records on a case by case basis. You wouldn't rush out with a kind of loyalty of an Adam and the Ants fan or a 
jam fan and buy mm. a single on trust because it was them you'd wait and see you give it a listen you'd hear it on the radio a few mm. times and think oh, actually this one's quite good and you go and buy it um, yeah. so I, I think Depeche Mode was, was sort of like everybody's 11th favourite band or something like that if you know what I mean <laughs> um, now clearly these days I'm wrong about that because I know people are absolutely fucking obsessed with Depeche Mode um, interestingly yeah. they tend to be from continental Europe rather than from the UK um, mm. these, these rabid Depeche fans that, that I yeah know. and America right right yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I, I liked Dave Garn's hair around this time um, he was my hairspiration for, for quite a bit <laughs> that kind of very well tended flat top that he had but not his clothes um taylor's <laughs> pointed out the uh, uh, horrific um uh, crimes against fashion of of uh, martin gore's clothes but with dave garn it's a shirt and tie under a leather jacket that's yeah. it's ne- never never a good look apart from on uh, dr bronofsky <laughs> the thing is all the people now who are obsessed with depeche mode like those ridiculous later yes. albums which I've never understood why they were taken seriously. Um, you know, not just as slightly gothy, slightly industrial pop records, but with really embarrassingly poor lyrics, but as timeless classics. And it's as if that's the serious work and these records are just sort of juvenilia, yeah. you know, when they're so obviously the best thing they ever yeah. did, all this stuff. It's so full of novelty in the good sense and free of all that ghastly heroin-induced self-absorption yeah. and boring gloom. I always really hated the, the sort of false gravitas of that later stuff. It was like a, it was like a, a massive cardboard weight with 1,000 tonnes written on the yeah. front, you know. <laughs> it was still this sort of spindly, nerdy music underneath, but with all the, all the charm drained away, yeah. along with the tunes. You know what, though? I mean, we've we've mentioned Mark Almond already a couple of times um, yeah. in this episode, and oh, you know, I can't wait to cover him on chart music. <laughs> um, and um, we, you know, I, I I mentioned that I've been working on on the soft cell box set on on the on the booklet for that, and in order to do that, I had to interview. Uh, I've interviewed Mark, I've interviewed Dave Ball, uh, and various sort of producers and um, other people associated with the band. And all... Any sex dwarves? <laughs> well, you know, they're, they're just looking around my house at any given time, so that's, that's a given. <laughs> um, but um, every single person I spoke to has a real bee in their bonnet about Depeche Mode because the way right. they see it is, the moment the soft cell um, sort of disintegrated in about 84, um, Depeche Mode suddenly changed direction and become this kind of dark, yeah. um, seedy, gothic um, synth band, which is what Soft yeah. Cell had been up, up to that point. And then Depeche yeah. Mode take that thing and run with it and become stadium-sized, you know? Yeah. And I think Soft Cell, well, I know Soft Cell are a little bit bitter about that. Funny that you mentioned all the, the, the kind of like the gothicness, because I do recall now that all, all the people I know at school who stopped being futurists, about 90% of them ended up being goths. So they just carried on listening to Depeche Mode anyway. Well, there was a very logical migration from the Blitz cu- yeah. Club to the Batcave Club. And, you know, yeah. you know, um, in, in all the parts of the country that didn't have uh, those establishments, just spiritually to move from one mindset to that, to the other one. It's, yeah, it was, it was a natural move, really. So the following week, The Meaning of Love soared 22 places to number 12, its highest position. The general public liked it. The follow-up, Leaving Silence, got to number 18 in September of this year. Mm. 
the next moment, of course, and the meaning of love. Now then, this gentleman over here is Ken Bailey, and he is the guy who deprived you of that vision that you might have seen on BBC One if he hadn't covered Erica Rose, um, Erica Rose. And the reason that he's here and all these ladies from British Airways are here is we've got the England World Cup squad and their new hit single, which is terrific. This time, we'll fly the flag. <laughs> Bates, accompanied by British Airways stewardesses and a zoo wanker in an orange rig out and a tash, draws our attention to a 71-year-old man dressed like a Brexit circus ringmaster, brandishing a massive England shield as if he was about to play the Joker on It's a Knockout. Why, it's none other than Ken Bailey. That fucking ghoul. <laughs> who once ran all the way round the deck of a ship over and over on his way to America to present a petition to President Roosevelt asking him to get on our side in World War II when the Nazis kicked off, which he ignored, the bastard. And is best known for being the figurehead of the England Supporters Club. And, as Bates pointed out, he covered up Erica Rose's tits when she lobbed him out at Twickenham in January of this year. Fucking cock blocker. <laughs> he then introduces something called This Time We'll Fly the Flag, when it's actually England Will Fly the Flag by the England World Cup squad. Formed in London in 1870, England had to wait 100 years before landing a record deal with Pie Records and releasing Back Home, which got to number one for three weeks in May of 1970. They were considered as one-hit wonders throughout the rest of the 70s after a disastrous tour of Poland in 1973 and an ill-informed change of managers. But after they recruited the singer Kevin Keegan, who'd got to number 31 in June of 1979 with Head Over Heels in Love, they were inspired by the success of the Buzzcocks and formed their own label, England Records. Linking up with Chris Norman and Pete Spencer of Smoke, who wrote Head Over Heels in Love for Kegge, they recorded This Time We'll Get It Right, but they released it as a double A-side with this song, a cover version of the 1975 British Airways jingle We'll Take More Care of You, which was written by Jake Holmes, who wrote Dazed and Confused in 1967 and went on to write Be All You Can Be for the US Army in the 1980s. The lyrics have been rewritten by Mickey Most and the song's producer, yeah. Adrian Gervitz, and it's gone up this week from number four to number two. Well, Adrian Gervitz, he was going to write a classic, but he wrote this instead. Where the fuck do we start on this? Yeah, let's start with Ken Bailey, that fucking ghoul. Um, Tory councillor from Bournemouth and revolting self-appointed mm. patriot-in-chief. Uh making all international yes. sporting events creepy with that hideous blank grin like a reanimated corpse and his 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 silent he was always he had a terrible lisp so he never said anything. Um his silent personification of all the worst aspects of British jingoism. Like ugly, stupid, exploding with national pride, but devoid of individual pride, tatty and 
sort of looking a bit like a nonce. And what's weird is that everyone in Britain past a certain age has a shared memory of Ken Bailey being a nonce, and let you, and yet you research it, and there's no record of this at all. Just people telling no. stories of how, when they were kids, their parents banned them from going to children's sporting events in Bournemouth because Bailey would be there. Um, but the thing is, you look at him and his place in old school British culture, and it just seems really weird for him to be clean. Whereas, in fact, it looks like he was clean. In fact, too clean, as we know, because he yeah. covered up Erica Rowe's tits yeah. with his Union Jack when she streaked at Twick- Twickenham. And yes. really, is there any more perfect illustration of Britain than a creepy old man covering up a naked young woman with a <laughs> Union Jack? The only way it could have been more perfect is if he was groping her under cover of that Union Jack. <laughs> He's probably the only person to ever pair on top of the pops who's had a Sabutio figurine <laughs> yeah. done. Yeah. Though. Which is a damn shame. What, wouldn't it be great if you could have had an Alvin Stardust on the touchline of your Sabutio pitch just pointing at things? <laughs> Did you you had quite a, an extensive Sabutio collection, didn't you, Simon? Did you have a Ken Bailey? No, I did not have him. Um, I do still have most of my Sabutio in, um, in a suitcase in the basement. It's probably bashed up to fuck, but um, no, I, I I never had him. Um, I I don't really have anything to add to Taylor's magnificent diatribe against yes. uh, Ken Bailey. Um, I I endorse it all, endorse uh, it and not intended. Um, and yeah, I mean, obviously, if he was around now, he'd be the cheerleader for Brexit, wouldn't he? There's no question oh, about yeah. that. Definitely, yeah. Erica Rowe, um, one of the few famous people from my old university. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Along with Reef and uh, one of the Libertines. <laughs> Sorry about that, everyone. No, but um, Ken Bailey just gave me the absolute creeps. This kind of leering, monstrous visage, like something out of out of a nightmare, um, mm. just hovering. And in this episode, is is just sort of uh, unchanging expression. It's kind of just. Um, yeah. fixed grin. Like Banco's ghost yeah, just, at the feast. It's just really unsettling and for reasons which I probably couldn't have articulated at the time but I think Taylor's done very well indeed but um, yeah I mean uh, do you know what I was I was in um, uh, New Orleans recently uh, on holiday and mm. um, on the final day and, and New Orleans you know for people who don't know is, is very much um, an island of uh, liberal bohemian values uh, among the conservatism of of the deep south um mm. on, on the final day i was there just before we were going to head back to the airport uh there was this guy who had this kind of um this stall this this, this trolley that, that he'd, he'd set out um on the edge of uh, the french market and he was dressed up head to toe in kind of um american flag uh trousers and jacket and a big top hat and he called himself yeah. um badass uncle sam and uh <laughs> uh he he had this uh, this this card these cardboard cutouts of hillary clinton in orange um prison clothing in hillary clinton's crotch area uh, this guy had painted grab here uh, as oh nice yeah, yeah, yeah. um Anyway, you can see where I'm going with this. This guy, badass mm. Uncle Sam, is very much the American equivalent of what K- Ken Bailey was in uh, 80s, well, 80s going back to the 40s by the sound of yeah. his longevity, um, uh, you know, in, in, in British culture of that time. And I'm just, I mean, do we have anyone like that now? I, I, I like to think we haven't, 
got no. quite as hideous a sort of patriotic cipher doing the rounds. But yeah, he'd have gone out to Russia, wouldn't he, Ken? Yeah, it might not have might not have <laughs> yeah, made it. Wouldn't home. have ended well. It yeah, it might not come back. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I hate the England football team. Right, I'm one of those. And I didn't always. Mm. Um, my attitude used to be that it was like being from a shit town with a horrible football team, but that was yeah. high enough in the football pyramid that there was no excuse for not supporting them. Right, like Luton or something like that. Uh, it's just tough mm. luck. You have to make the best of it. Um, but that changed around the turn <laughs> of the millennium, I think partly from getting older and more realistic, partly as a result of the then phenomenally dislikable clutch of, of toss pots representing the country on the international yeah. stage partly in defiance yeah. of the sort of sick low iq patriotism of the english sports media my contempt for which outweighs any patriotic impulses i may ever have felt and although the current england squad is sort of the least despicable for a while um, and the media have become a yes, bit more are. realistic and a, a bit less obnoxious about them uh, this hasn't changed shortly before the last year as i was out of the country and i got back feeling a little bit guilty mm. and a little bit old-fashioned for hating England so much because I'd been out of England, right? Uh, the first thing I saw yeah. when I got off the plane at Heathrow the day before the Euros was a copy of the Evening Standard, that shining symbol of English non-inclusiveness. Um, the cover was Prince mm. William cheering in an aggressive way with his, his hideous face twisted with meaningless oh. emotion, like oozing everything that football's not about. And the headline was, yes. come on, England. And I thought, no, they're filth, no. they're scum. And as things stand, you would be <laughs> cheering for this. Um, and so, yeah, my God, yeah. how I enjoyed seeing them getting humped by Iceland. Oh, oh that was beautiful, wasn't it? I think my my feelings towards England have, if anything, drifted in the opposite direction. Uh, um, Because for most of my teenage and indeed adult life, I felt fairly sort of warmly disposed towards England. I wouldn't say I ever supported them, but, you know, I live here. um, Most of my friends are English. And I just thought, you know, I wish them well. I thought, you know, good for you. Have a good time. And, um, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd sit and watch their matches and usually I'd be sort of vaguely rooting for them to win but I think for me everything changed when Wales qualified for the Euros yeah. in 2016 it's like well actually finally we're on on, on this stage and um, going over there and experiencing the difference between the fan culture of, of the Welsh fans and of the English fans mm. just really brought it home to me um, it, yeah, you, you were sitting in chairs as opposed to throwing them. Exactly, um, and the French absolutely loved us over there, and so did you know yeah. uh, all of the all of the other nations that that we ran into were just you know really sort of positive towards us and cheering us as we walked down the street and all of that. Mm. Whereas um, if we weren't wearing our Wales attire and we walked in somewhere and we're talking uh, English, people would yeah. immediately be on edge because they think that we are English. And it's yeah. it's amazing how quickly you could just put them at ease by saying no 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 we're Welsh it's fine, um, yeah. and and um, and th- this is against the backdrop of footage on the French news of you know people in Marseille throwing garden furniture at each other, and, yeah. and all all of that business. So um, there's that, and and the fact that I I suppose as a Liverpool supporter when I was watching international tournaments, at least I knew 
who the England players were, and there'd probably be about three or four Liverpool players in there at any given time. Yeah. Um, but you know, now even even that's kind of faded with the sort of internationalism of club football and the fact that mm. as well as there's a couple in there, there's Trent Alexander Arnold and uh, Jordan Henderson. Um, yeah. But yeah, so, so even even that connection's gone now, and to me, it's just like England Hotspur. That's who they are now, and yes, I, I just couldn't give less of a fuck and. Just the the whole the whole unpleasantness surrounding England now, the whole everything from from the team to to the fans to the kind of sense of entitlement, which I think is still there in the media. It's it's declined a little yeah. bit. Um, just just turns me off, and I just love seeing them get beaten. When they got knocked out of the last of last tournament by Iceland, I was absolutely pissing myself laughing. In much yeah, in much too. the same way, there's that footage of of the Wales players just roaring with laughter watching it on the on the screen and that was absolutely how I felt so you know I mean before we go any further we must say that if any of the pop craze youngsters do want to read something about the World Cup uh, there's no better book than um, Send Them Victorious by our very own David Stubbs yeah which completely nails the the cuntishness of supporting England yeah. it's brilliant you know it's just a series of match reports by the wing commander and it's oh, it's just amazing. Go and go and check it out. It's fucking brilliant. But my opinion on England is because I'm a seventies child, uh, I know that I will die and never see England win a, a major tournament. Uh, so I'm quite happy with them just not being cunts and battling and you know being a bit unlucky. Um, but you know, as time goes on, my my opinion now is. No, England being in a World Cup is like your aunties being at your 21st birthday do. <laughs> it's really great that they're there. But after a very short while, you just want them to fuck off so you can start enjoying yeah. yourself properly. I mean, I'm, you know what I'm I mean? not yeah. even obsessively anti-patriotic, but what it is, they bring the worst no. out of English people, including the actual members of yeah. the England squad. Um, it's like day yeah. in, day out. The problem is that in football and in life, the English are not able to realistically identify their own strengths and weaknesses and work on them. Um, And they have this unrealistic and sort of hubristic idea of the extent to which they actually rely on outsiders. And in those days, you know, in football, it was mostly Irish, Scots and Welsh. Nowadays, it's people from all over the world Mm. um, who complement the English. But, you know, that's complement. They certainly don't complement the English very often. But the way that that works will not be recognised. And because of that, there's never any preparation for what's going to happen when the English have to go it alone. Just this sort of blithe arrogance. Mm. As you can see in the collection of goals shown to accompany this song, which for start is a collection of, oh, of yes. scuffs, rebounds, yes, yes. deflections, goalie ball. errors. Boot it up to the big man, boot it up the big man, knock it down, yeah, scuff it and they're in. all from yeah, you're right. They're yeah. all from the home internationals that are, that have just been played. So yes. they're all scored against Particularly the four 0 yeah, all scored of against the other home nations. And so all of whom yeah. are watching this programme at home and are just expected to cheer as usual as Big Brother duffs them up. Yeah, you're right. Um the the best one I think is a header from Keegan when he, yes. he gets higher than a small man should and really attacks the ball. But yeah, you're right. It is England at their most kind of meat and potatoes, isn't it? It's kind of pretty agricultural yeah. stuff. It's basically, that's the header that Keegan should have done yes. in the World Cup yes, finals yes. in 1982. Yes. 
So the so- the song or the performance? Let's let's start with the song because fucking hell. So it's actually from the advert, isn't it? It's the old BA advert. Yes. We'll take more care. Yes, it is. Yeah. Which, if I remember rightly, was already um, a football chant at this time. Yeah. I can't remember what people, which club it was, or what people would sing to it, but it was already being used that way. But yeah, um, yeah, I'd, I'd forgotten that this was a double A side. Yeah. So um, am I right in saying they'd been on the previous week doing? The other side. They've been on two weeks previously doing this time, we'll get it right. Yeah. But the, the song's fucking cat shit though, isn't it? Oh yeah, it's awful. It's just a billowy fart in a in a pair of fucking blue satin shorts. Oh, or in a pair of crimpling dad slacks, which is like when you look mm. at this, visually this is perfectly representative of the England team in that it's an ugly shambles. Yes, and it looks it really like fucking is, they're man. all standing it looks like Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Arts Club band. <laughs> Recreated in a in a no trainers nightclub in older shop. It's fucking horrible. <laughs> they got Kevin Keegan front and centre, and he's flanked by Mick Mills, who looks like John Major's criminal brother-in-law. Um, <laughs> and on the other side, he's got Dave Watson. Dave Watson, who yes. didn't even make the squad, and who's been pushed to the front despite looking like the bassist out of a heavy metal band from a quarter of a million years ago. Yes. <laughs> he's dressed up, he's come dressed up as Hurricane Higgins, hasn't he? <laughs> yes. But all of them, you think, you spend all this time training and eating yeah. right, and then you waste it by wearing these shapeless dad slacks and John oh. Craven jumpers. Oh, those horrible jumpers with the uh, Bulldog Bobby on them again. Oh. They're awful. And they're the ones with a really kind of like narrow waistband, which would make fucking Grace Jones look like like she's got a bare gut. They look like every single one of them should be called Terry. I don't think any of them were called Terry, but they look like should have been. (laughs) The only one who looks a bit hunky is uh, Tony Morley of uh, Aston Villa, who's got a sort of bit of a David Van Day haircut going on. And he seems to be getting on rather well with the British Airways air hostess he's linked arms with. (laughs) Yes. Um, I mean, air hostesses in those days were like nurses, you know, or or showgirls, apparently at it all the time with Mm. anyone, if British male culture of the time is to be believed. But it's a disgrace that they're there in the first place because this is a crossover with British yeah. Airways, right? Yes. The England squad singing an elongated advertising jingle for a yeah. price-gouging airline. I know they are the flag carrier, and at the time they were a nationalised company, so that yes. sort of makes it less bad. But even so, it feels cheap and shoddy and lacking in class, you know, like everything to do with the England teams of this era, you know, in their mm. in their world of... of uh, Free Ford Escorts from the local garage and yes. ladder-pulling working-class Toryism. They should do a tie-in now with EasyJet. Yes. <laughs> or, or German wings. Yeah. Oh, God. I was, I was trying to figure out the morality of this whole tie-in with British Airways because, as Taylor says, yeah, they were um, a, a nationalised industry at the time. So, yeah, I suppose it was um, the BBC giving a free advert to um, another uh, uh, nas- nationalised industry, but um, it's it's the it's the fact that they are a British um, company um, choosing to hook up with the England World Cup squad. Yes, it's so, what? So it's, it's English Airways now, is it? Is that what they are? They're basically saying British Airways is for England for the English, you know. So yeah, I, th- I thought yeah, that was a bit yeah. weird. Uh, but as we'll see later on, the Scots have countered this. 
Yes, that is a, that is a fair point. We will see that. Um, yeah, and halfway through but, the song, we cut back to Kege, and he's got one of the stewardesses hats on, and he looks so fucking hip hop. <laughs> LL Cool K is hard as hell. <laughs> also, it's it's just um, it's, it's interesting that the uh, Union Jack was a lot more prevalent among England yes. fans in those days than it, yes, sub- it was, subsequently yeah. became. Because certainly by the time of Euro 96, it was all Cross of St. Yeah. George everywhere, wasn't it? There was a real Cross yes. of St. George revival in the 90s. And I think that kind of continues now. But um, at one point... Because well, it was easier to paint across yeah, the face, yeah, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah. Pretty much. But but certainly um, at, at this time... Uh, the uh, the Union Jack was basically it, it was synonymous with with England and all the other home yeah. nations. Just well, let them have it. They can have it. It's theirs. Fine, yeah. fine. And I think yes. that, that's probably still the way it is. Um, so watching this performance, uh, I found myself trying to name all the players in my mind without cheating, and mm. I was quite impressed that, that I could get most of them. And um, some of the ones who stood out, Peter With. Um, yes. look, looking like one of the demons, the D A E M O N S from Doctor <laughs> Who. Um, the only yes. the, the footballer who look, looks most like one of the Doctor Who demons, uh, I think. Um, <laughs> him and Socrates, possibly. Um, yes. Uh, and then, so <laughs> yes. you, you've got. Don't uh, say anything, Taylor. <laughs> uh, you've got uh, uh, Joe Corrigan, um, Paul Mariner, who who yes. um, who looks uh, in, in the same way people say that uh, uh, Pete Townsend looks like anybody looks in the back of a spoon. That's what Paul Mariner looks like. Um, yes. You've got, um, there's a lot of don't knows. I, I think I, I spotted people like Kenny Sansom and Gary Bailey, was it? And uh, Trevor yes. Francis, um, S- Joe Corrigan, Steve Foster, Brighton Hove Albion, Steve Foster with yeah. that kind of yes. bubble perm hairdo. Um, most familiar. For, for, yeah, he's, but he's not wearing it, is he? His trademark headband. He's no. not, but I think he sparked. He looked naked. He did. He sparked a craze, a brief craze for headbands after appearing in the FA Cup final, um, wearing one. Um, yeah. So yeah, um, it's, it's it's weird how how, uh, how how these things come come flooding back to you when you were that immersed in football at the time. Yeah, the overall impression we're getting here is uh, the last night of the proms. If it had been franchised out to the producers of Bullseye, yeah, <laughs> uh, they're all wearing the bulldog bobby jumpers. There's yeah. some board stewardesses, and there's members of the general public at the back with uh, Ken Bailey gurning away at the side. Yeah, and they found a black woman, just one, yes. just one, and put her yeah. right at the side, yes. just sort of kind of hanging off the edge, like the yeah. doll in the Welcome the Rolling Stones jumper. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and the lyrics it's but like the, the lyrics it's yes the lyrical content it's it's 1982 the world is waiting for England no it's, yeah. it's fucking not is it <laughs> well, well well depends I mean I, I think waiting in the sense of oh we'll fucking tear these fuckers arseholes off yeah. <laughs> or waiting in the sense of like hiding under a table yeah <laughs> <laughs> they, they actually don't talk about what they're going to do they just you know they sing England bring it home bring it home you know, we, we're going to bring it back and everything. But they don't say the World Cup. And I think, is that a trademark thing? Or are they talking about bringing back a, a, a novelty sombrero or a, or a stuffed donkey? Uh, capital punishment. A lot of duty free. Or, or a bottle of sangria in a wicker basket or something. <laughs> I mean, the, 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 basically the subtext of the song is, look, we know we've been shit. Uh, and we lost to Norway, but you know, we'll, you know, we'll 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 sort ourselves out. Don't worry. Yeah, I've heard that before and since. Yes. <laughs> yeah, we got to talk about the actual record, haven't we? Fucking yes. Hell. I mean, in in football terms, you can tell a bit about an era by the kind of music 
which is associated with football, yeah. right? Like 20 years prior to this, it was sort of stomping umpa music yes. with someone blowing a whistle. <laughs> and then <laughs> 10, years, 10 years prior, it was butling schlager. Yes. And here it's like a sort of mulleted 30-something in a soft brown leather jacket's idea of streamlined pop. Mm. And on the other side, on this time, there's a touch of Mike Oldfield misery. Mm. Um, although still with that, ensembles singing like three old ladies locked in the lavatory <laughs> which is really dubious because it's always very mysterious as to how me- how much of that singing is actually done by the footballers yeah um because there's usually one clear lead voice which doesn't belong to a footballer yeah you know. but yeah and then 10 years after this the football music would be like incidental music indie you know what I mean? It always reflects what's seen as the respectable end of the football audience, right? Which is why you didn't get the early 70s England team singing Blue Beat, you know, which is <laughs> what the real fans like. Yeah, yeah. Um, and why in the new millennium it fell apart and you got like Ant and Deck and weird mi- mismatched combos of various Spice Girls and TV personalities because now... The respectable football audience was identified simply as consumers, you know, with no coherent identity. Um, it's like a war, this stuff. You know what I mean? Like when you're fascinated by all this stuff, you look at look at the the bottom end of pop culture. You know, the way it goes backwards and forwards. People sometimes refer to the sort of stuff we do on here as nostalgia, right? Which is completely the wrong word. It's not nostalgia yes. at all. It's more like being a military historian. So um, England haven't even bothered doing a song this year, have they? No, they haven't, no. And I I don't know if they have the last couple, two or three tournaments. Not since 2010. Is that right? Right. Yeah. And but in a way, this... I, I suppose that, that makes them a bit more likeable, that, you know, they've, they've dropped all this bullshit. And, you know, I think, mm. I think Gareth Southgate is slightly more likeable than previous managers, and he's sort of bringing in younger players and... You know, maybe maybe we should like you know be a bit more positive towards him for that. But well, there's no fucking John Terry in it, so there we go. Instantly more likable. Yeah, well, exactly. Yeah. But the the fact that you know expectations have have, have slid to the point where they don't even bother bringing out a jingoistic mm. song anymore um, is an interesting trend in itself. Like you know, Taylor's talking yeah. about that kind of military yeah. history aspect because at this point, 1982. They didn't just have a song. Come on, we've got to talk about it. They had a fucking album. Oh, yeah. This time, the album. Shall I go through the track listing? Yes, please. It's a lot like one of those 60s albums where you just front load the album with the hits and then it tails off because on the A side, we start with This Time We'll Get It Right. Track two, England Will Fly the Flag. Track three, Head Over Heels by Keggy Keagle. Track number four, We Are The Champions, sung by... Glenn Hoddle. <laughs> and it's not and it's not the theme tune to the kids show we are the champions it's the queen cover version and it's not bad it really does sound like it's him singing amazing yeah and you can't listen to it without getting the moving picture of Glenn yes. Hoddle in a white vest <laughs> and skin tight jeans like pirouetting with a cut off mic stand and and uh, and waving a suggestive fist <laughs> track 5 this is where it starts to tail off. Bulldog Bobber <laughs> by Mike Reed, R-E-I-D, and the Mini Pops. Fucking hell's bells. You can imagine, can't you? 
<laughs> Track six, they draft in the Leyland Vehicles Brass Band to perform the theme to Grandstand. And then the, the side rounds <laughs> off with the England squad doing a medley of Land of Hope and Glory and Abide With Me. Amazing. The B-side. This is where it gets interesting. Track one, The Road to Spain by Ray Clements, <laughs> which is a spoken word slam poetry piece. Oh, my God. That you you listen to and you just want to set it to some really doomy music, <laughs> like Godspeed, you Black Emperor or something. <laughs> Track two, Back Home by the 1970 England squad. See, they're already Christ. relying on the fucking old shit. Track three, You'll Never Walk Alone, oh. performed by Trevor Francis and Viv Anderson. <laughs> <laughs> Track four, Can't Get a Ticket for the World Cup by Wesley McGugan. Yeah, later covered without success by uh, scum-faced East Ender Pete Beale. Really? Yeah, in nineteen eighty six. Yeah, Wesley McGugan joined the beat around around this time, actually nineteen eighty two. Yes, around this for time, special yeah. beat service. Yeah, yeah. Bloody hell! And do you know what he did before that? What he did the sax solo on "Will You" by Hazel O'Connor. Wow. Yeah. Track five. We move back to the Leyland Vehicles Brass Band for the theme tune to "Match of the Day," then the theme tune to "World of Sport." And then track seven, the national anthem sung by the England squad. <laughs> and finishes off with the mm. instrumental version of This Time by the Leyland Vehicles Brass Band. What an album. <laughs> this Time version. Yes. <laughs> version. <laughs> shon, 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 shon. So the following week, This Time We'll Get It Right, slash England Will Fly the Flag, dropped six places to number eight. The follow-up a version of the 1978 Nottingham Forest single called We've Got the Whole World at Our Feet would only get to number 66 in 1986, followed by a doomed collaboration with Stock Aitken and Waterman in 1988 with All The Way, which only made it to number 64. But they changed their name to England New Order in 1990 and roared back to number one with World In Motion. Sadly, that was the last World Cup song featuring the England squad, and the job was farmed out to assorted bands until the practice was discontinued in 2010. Possibly because of this performance, when Saatchi and Saatchi were given the British Airways advertising account as a treat for helping the Conservative Party lie their arse off in the 1979 general election, the first thing they did was drop We'll Take More Care of You in favour of some opera bollocks. And while England are not getting involved in the World Cup record thing this year, the gauntlet has been picked up by none other than Chris Needham, who has released the single Take the World. A message from the man himself. I think you'll love Take the World. That's the unofficial England supporting anthem for Russia 18. And tell me, it doesn't need to be played in a big stadium with 60,000 people chanting along. When I say anthem, I mean anthem. Poor Chris, he's got... On the panel this week is a Welshman, uh, an England hater, (laughs) and someone who doesn't give a shit anymore. Yes.
hostess is in the studio yet. That's the England World Cup squad. Here's PhD at number three. Full chart rundown later on, but this is I Won't Let You Down, and it's lovely. over a girl with manky spikes in her hair introduces I Won't Let You Down by PhD. Really the best thing about this clip is the when Bates does the intro. There's that girl with the Carnaby Street punk hair in front mm. of him. And at one point she turns her head and one of the prongs gets caught it's on his brilliant. microphone. And so she turns her head a bit more and it goes boing, 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 like, a, like a comedy And splinter. you can imagine how cross Simon Bates would be about this. Oh, yes. It's amazing. I love it. Formed in London in 1981, PhD were Tony Hymers and Simon Phillips, two former members of the Jeff Beck Band, and lead singer Jim Diamond a former protégé of Alexis Corner, who formed the rock group Bandit in 1976 with the future husband of Kate Bush. Their debut single, Little Susie's On The Up, failed to chart, but the follow-up, I Won't Let You Down, was picked up on by Peter Powell, and it's up this week from number 13 to number 3. Well, finally, Jim Diamond enters the fray on chart music. I mean, this song, this 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 could easily have been the England World Cup song of 1982. It's the same <laughs> sentiment, isn't it? Yeah, it is. <laughs> He's a funny little man, isn't he, Jim Diamond? Mm. Uh, shifty eyes, balding, comb-forward hair, and this kind of... He looks extremely Aventis in this one, I have to say. Yeah, are you trying to provoke me now? And this, uh, <laughs> this kind of hunched, almost apologetic stance, sort of... Uh, Hands in his pockets, rocking from side to side, like, oh, I didn't mean to, sort of thing. Yeah. He um, looks to me like uh, an informer on The Professionals. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, the one that the Bodie has to intimidate in front of his mates in a dingy pub and then takes into the, the back room yeah. and then pretends to beat him up over a few crates of Britvic uh, whilst getting information about Greek terrorists or the or the Keep Africa White movement. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you can tell also because he's, he's really short, which most of those people were, so that they'd be shorter than Lewis Collins and Martin Shaw. Um, yes. He's got that face like <laughs> David Moyes, right? Like older than his years. You know what I mean? Like a bad air, bad diet yeah. face. Like, you know how Moyes had been a professional athlete and at the peak of physical fitness. All his life. Mm. But he looks like a woman from the Gorbals who smoked 80 Super Kings a day for the last 60 years. Uh, and Jim Diamond, he's only small, but he's got that kind of uh, bacon fat hardened face, you know, with mm. the hollow cheeks and the sunken eyes of a man whose archer is a crying out for mercy. Uh, yeah. yeah. But, I mean, he looks apologetic, but also a bit fearsome, uh, which... G- it's to the detriment of the song because you look at him singing this song and you think, well, what did you do to let her down, Jim? Yeah. The most unsettling part of the lyrics, though, is when, when he goes, take me and chain me, if you please, woman. It's like yeah. a plea for S&M rough stuff that makes me shudder in, in a bad way, I might add. Mm. Yeah. I mean, it's 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 a it's a good song, in you know, good in inverted commas, isn't it? But it's very yeah. much 
it's very much aimed at the mums and dads. That's that's how yes. I felt about it at the time. Um, and also, it's a little bit prog. Um, it's maybe prog's the wrong word. It's muso. It's definitely muso. Um, uh, as you mentioned, that they're ex-members of the, of the Jeff Beck group, and even though they're playing what is essentially a fairly straightforward little ditty, there's this feeling that if they wanted to, they could really break loose and show you their chops. Do you know what I'm saying? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I really liked this record at the time. I'm not entirely sure why. I mean, around this time, I thought the coolest thing in the world was this transit van I used to see driving around Kidderminster with an airbrushed (laughs) mural on the side of an eagle flying over the Grand Canyon. (laughs) 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 Something written on it in neon pink handwriting font in the corner you know some old band of joy roadie sat in there digging the seed in the <laughs> horse fair. um i don't dislike this record much now but there is something uncomfortable and unsavory about it it's like it's one of those records where you're not quite sure what their game is mm. the verse is sort of structured like a reggae record like if it was reggae that was like bleached out under a glasgow sky then it goes into the yeah. chorus. Kind of reggae that Germans would yeah, like. Yeah, yeah. Then it goes into the chorus with these um, descending chords, like a Motown chorus, but there's no power to mm. it because there's no contrast between the two sections. It's the same feeble backing, no shift in uh, momentum or dynamics. So on those Motown records, mm. it gets to the chorus and they'd have eight blokes going, ah, or something, so you know it's the chorus, you know, because this yeah. just continues. And it's like a yeah. it's like a cross between John and Van Gelis and Street Cafe by John Lodge. You know, it's like the former right. more musically and the latter more spiritually. It's like it only really makes sense to people of a certain age who are very much in the rock world. Like it's not really for Radio Two dad types. It's for rockers, no. but who are no longer interested in zippy poppy music. You know, but they didn't have a conscious mm. awareness of that they of what they were giving up when they made that move you know and it's a tiny niche there's a few records like this it's a tiny niche that doesn't really exist anymore in the same way which might be why these records sort of seem quite mysterious and confusing yeah you know i didn't like this song then don't like it now the one thing i really don't like is the second line where jim diamond does one of those forced half laughs when he sings want me to shout it like like that like used to do on Central when they used to say, and now it's <laughs> Russ Abbott's Madhouse. <laughs> He's got an unusual yeah. voice, Jim Diamond, because it's high-pitched but not falsetto. I think that's his natural range because, mm. you know, when people sing falsetto, they've got that kind of breathy, angelic timbre to it. But um, that this this is his natural yeah. voice, I think. It's not, I don't think he's, you know, doing that thing. It's not. It's not. It's not a soul falsetto. Mm. It's just a man who happens to have a very high voice singing. Um, yeah. I, I tell you what's a shame, though. I mean, uh, here he is in the top of the pop studio doing it, but it's a shame they're not showing the video. Have you seen the video? Well, yes. We've got yes. to talk about the video. It's extraordinary. Yes. He's following um, a, a sexy lady in. Um, uh, she, she's a statuesque yes, blonde. She she's got um, a, a black leather mini skirt and a leopard print top. And he's following her down the street um, through various parks in, in London and pubs and so on, pleading with her. And she's just basically mugging him off and ignoring him. Um, yeah. And meanwhile, there's some other character, possibly another member of PhD, in, in a long brown um, coat, um, following them along, hiding behind trees and trying to throw daggers and 
plant bombs and stuff to kill kill yeah. Jim Diamond. It's 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 one of the <laughs> it's one of the oddest pop videos. And I urge anyone listening to chart yeah. music. Um, uh, obviously, we want you to watch the actual TOTP clips that we're talking about, but do go and watch. I won't yes. let you down the video. It's amazing. They'll all be on the video playlist, yes. and and also, which is fucking enormous now, man. Is it? We're getting we're, we're gonna we're gonna reach a hundred videos in a video playlist before too long, possibly in this one. And this is something that that I know Taylor's particularly into. Um, the video for "I Won't Let You Down" is just full of great footage of old Britain, old London. Yes, kind of unvarnished. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not yeah. a film set. It's just the streets as they were at that time, which is great to see. I think it's quite funny that. Uh, there's been any speculation on why Jim Diamond looks so aggressive when he's uh, a Scotsman from the late 70s, early 80s, who's about five foot five <laughs> and he's got a high voice. <laughs> it's like, like he's like Billy Bremner, you know? What yes. I mean? like, why, why was why was Billy Bremner so aggressive on the pitch? <laughs> yeah, I wonder. So the following week, I won't let you down. Stayed at number three, and then stayed at number three again before slipping down the chart. The follow-up, There's No Answer To It, failed to chart, and after two more flop singles in 1983, they split up when Jim Diamond contracted hepatitis and the band were unable to tour. Oh, he let them down, big style. (laughs) However, Diamond would score a number one hit in December of 1984 with I Should Have Known Better, and then reached number five in March of 1986 with Hi Ho Silver, the theme tune to Boone. These two gentlemen are Ray Clements and Glenn Hardwell, and they've got interesting little badges with Latin inscriptions on them, one of which doesn't say Tottenham Hotspur. Can I ask you, does your wife know where you are, sir? Oh, yes. Does she? Does she know what you are going to do later on? Uh, Yes, sing for Tottenham Hotspur. That's right, because you're singing on two singles. It's about the first time ever on Top of the Pops we've had two guys singing on two separate singles. Here's Fantasy Island. It's Julie, Denise and Steve, and it's tight fit, and fellas, get over there as quick as you can, because you're on next. Conducts an in-depth interview. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 
36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. ...with Glenn Hoddle and Ray Clements, and he's fascinated by the badge on their club jumpers, which says, Ordeer est facere, to dare is to do. And then ask Glenn Hoddle if his missus knows where he is tonight. I think he's confused him for Peter Shilton there, don't you? And then introduces Fantasy Island by Type Fit. Formed in London in 1981 by the producer Ken Gold, who had worked with The Real Thing in the mid-70s, Type Fit were originally a collective of session singers who jumped on the Stars on 45 bandwagon with a single called Back to the 60s, which got to number four in August of 1981. The follow-up, Back to the 60s Part 2, only got to number 33 in October of that year and Gold stepped away from the project. However, another producer, Tim Freeze Green, who was working with Blue Zoo and Thomas Dolby at the time, recorded a cover version of The Lion Sleeps Tonight with Roy Ward, the former lead singer of City Boy, who had a number 8 hit with 5705 in 1978. He reactivated the tight fit name for some reason and drafted in a West End singer and male model called Steve Grant and the singers Denise Gingell and Julie Harris to mime to it on top of the pops. And the single knocked a town called Malice by the Jam off the number one spot in February of this year and stayed there for three weeks, keeping Mickey by Tony Basil off the number one spot. The bastards. After it came out in the tabloids that Tight Fit were ringers on their own number one and Freeze Green was satisfied that his group could actually sing, he brought out this follow-up, a cover of the single by the Dutch band The Millionaires, who had only come out a few months previous and came second in the Dutch Song for Europe. And it's up this week from number 56 to number 32. So Simon Bates um, claims that uh, Glenn Hoddle and Ray Clements are the first people to appear on Top of the Pops twice with separate acts. Yes. And I wasn't sure about that. I thought, is that no, it's true? Bullshit. Well, there's a guy called Tony Burrows who oh, yes. uh, claims um, that he was on Top of the Pops three times in the same episode yeah. with uh, Edison Lighthouse, uh, White Plains, and mm. uh, Pipkins, I think was the other one. Yes, um, yes. But um, there's been some doubt poured upon this, and it turns out that um, they... It, they were all around the same time, but they weren't on yeah. the same episode. No, whether he but on... he, he did appear twice on two separate occasions with them. Right, so so he does hold that record then. So basically, yes, he does. Bates is wrong. Okay, cool. I just yes. want, to, want to clear that up. I yeah, think yeah. he says yeah. it's the first time two blokes have appeared on the, oh, okay. which is one of those pointless yeah. stats because it means nothing. I mean, if it was no, one, yeah. it wouldn't really mean anything. But two, that's just really stretching it. Who cares? You know, yes. I was slightly yeah. distracted though in that intro because of Ken Bailey's hideous visage. Just hover it, just <laughs> yes. loom it like a screaming skull, just uh, yes. just in the background. <laughs> and I love how Simon Bates introduces tight fit. He says, it's Julie, De- Denise and Steve. It's like they're a group with strong individual personalities. <laughs> like yeah. as if in playgrounds across the lamp, it's saying, who's your favourite fitty? Oh, it's not Steve. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Of course, Steve Archibald, um, also in the same episode, appears twice. Uh, you know, True. Yes. So you've just True. got to bring that up. Um, yeah. I think Fancy Island is is genius. It's, it's a great 
great record. Um, I, I looked into this, the, mm. the Dutch band you mentioned, The Millionaires. Um, so their song was written by Martin Doiser and Pete Sewer. I, my Dutch pronunciation is pretty awful, but um, Pete Sewer wrote a hit called I'm the Grand Pretender. I love that, <laughs> that kind of slight English as a second language thing of calling it I'm the Grand Pretender. And which, of course, does to the great pretender what this record does to Alba. Yes, mm. ab- absolutely. And he also worked with Mouth and McNeil, um, an actor yes. whose name always fascinated me. Um, but... Obviously, uh, it's it's very very ABBA esque, and oh, yes. I think it's maybe the only really good ABBA impression I've heard. Mm. Because I mean, what else have you got? You've got Erasure literally doing ABBA. You've, yeah. you've got people like Steps, kind of you know, I don't know, channeling it in some sort of way. But yeah, th- this this absolutely nails it. Um, have I have I told my my tight fit uh, Barry Island story by the way on a previous episode? No, you haven't. Okay. <laughs> Um, I, I've actually seen Tight Fit live, or I've seen Steve from Tight Fit live. Um, he must have been down on his luck. It was uh, this would have been about 1986 by this point. Um, mm. He turned up at Feathers, my local disco at, um, at Barry Island, which is now a, a snooker hall, um, to do a, a live PA in his uh, uh, leopard print loincloth thing, oh. and uh, he didn't have um, uh, any backing band or uh, dancers around him it was just him he didn't even have a stage he was in the corner of the dance floor and the oh DJ, no yeah and the dj stuck on you know the record of the lion sleeps tonight and steve gyrates and mimes to it and it was so oh. pitiful we were just standing there openly laughing at him and i felt bad for the guy oh um, and it's like david van day in the uh in the officer's mess in absolutely. the falklands yeah yeah and i i think he just sort of uh did that uh, maybe one other song, and then just went back out, got in his car, and drove down the coast to Porthcawl to do it all again half an hour later. Or something <laughs> oh, like mate. That. I felt so bad for him. But um, <laughs> it's it's such a weird setup type fit, isn't it? Because you've yeah. told the whole thing about how they were originally this kind of franchise for doing those um, 60s medleys, which, by the way, if you listen to those 60s medleys, Stars on 45 and the type fit ones, now they're, they're deeply weird because um, they're not feats of turntableism you know it's not adventures no. on the wheels of steel by grandmaster flash no nor are they it certainly isn't no nor, nor are they sort of naughty style richard x or a freelance hellraiser mashups that they're, they're just straightforward um cut and shut um medleys yes which i, I suppose the, the nearest thing in pop culture later on was was jive bunny um yes but i mean we're going to be talking about these a lot whenever we cover an, another 1981 episode yeah, um, they, they they are they are really weird. But but what's weirder is the idea that you can then just take the name and transplant it onto yeah. a totally different entity, which that is weird, Ken isn't it? Gold and uh, uh, Tim Freeze Green did. And by the way, um, the uh, involvement of Tim Freeze Green is is really odd here because mm. he well he's the grandson, the sorry great grandson of the photography pioneer uh, William Freeze Green. Yeah. But more importantly. From right. a, a music point of view, he he went on to become essentially a member of Talk Talk and and yes. and produce the albums "It's My Life," the "Color of Spring," and "The Spirit of Eden." So there's a direct connection between this tight fit record and some of the most acclaimed art rock of of the eighties. What what a weird yeah. thing! Yeah, and he didn't. And he and he was horrified when the the line "Sleeps Tonight" got to number one because it's like, oh shit, I'm stuck with this now. <laughs> what well, it's, it's like I'm, his great grandfather. Uh, and his grandfather were both photography pioneers. Uh, like his great grandfather's grave is in Highgate Cemetery, 
you don't even have to go in. It's visible through the fence when you walk down Swain's Lane. Um, yeah, he made those very early films of Britain uh, and was one of the pioneers of colour film. And then his son, uh, Tim's granddad, uh, continued the tradition. And yeah, it must have looked at one point as though Tim was just, you know, really, really not going to do them proud. Um, but oh. then, you know, when you listen to those late period Talk Talk albums, uh, I would say uh, just as beautiful a record of uh, of um, Britain. But what, what what do you think of the record, Taylor? Because I, I absolutely what love it. What's this? I, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I like this. It's... Um, I, I was disappointed, though, to hear their origin story at the beginning because there's something about tight fit. They're so weird, you can't imagine how they could possibly have met. I didn't want to know. It was like Julie, Denise and Steve were mauled by a radioactive lion, which they thought was asleep, uh, yes. giving them uncanny powers, which might one day be detected. Stan Lee presents the tantalising tight fit. <laughs> I like, prefer to take them as they are as a spontaneously occurring pop curiosity and not know any of this stuff. I don't know. Yeah, I'm sorry. I like it, though. I do like it. Um, it's it's weird. Mm. You look at the, the girls in Tight Fit, it's a very early 80s British idea of glamour. It's... Uh, yes. It's a bit page three. It's a bit... Very. A bit Newtown mm. shopping parade, hair and beauty salon. Um and it's yes. a bit Marks and Sparks <laughs> lingerie section. It's sort of pleasant, but not yes. too sexual, right? nothing too carnal. It's always that fixed smile yeah. to make it suitable for children. Yeah, as they drape know. themselves around Steve, who I hated. I hated yeah. Steve Grant at the time because, number one, you know, he, he was obviously miming, which, which was wrong. Uh, number two, he was an absolute catalogue man. And number three, he was obviously knocking off those two women because they were just all over him all the time. And uh, that, that angered yeah, I think as I think as an, as an adult, you sort of raise an eyebrow at the uh, at the poss- at that possibility. They, I mean, Taylor's right yeah. about the page three element. Clearly, the other life that was waiting for these two women, had they not joined Tight Fit, was page three girls. Or you know, you used to get Big D nuts, and they'd be on this cardboard backing, and like every time you 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 bought a packet of nuts, it would expose yeah. a little bit more of yeah. of a sexy lady, maybe um maybe standing in a sort of jungle setting with with one yes. hand on a tree or something, <laughs> and you know maybe maybe she's she's got her, her feet in some kind of pond. And, uh, and and there, there are beads of sweat running down. And he used to do you used to fucking hate it when the the landlord would deliberately go around the 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 areas you wanted to see. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So that that's what they remind me of. Um, Denise <laughs> Gingell. Um, Denise Gingell was actually well. She's from the Rhondda Valley, uh, and she was a child actress. And she was fittingly um, she was a Hills Angel uh, um, before, before she was in Tight Fit, and she later married Pete Waterman. <laughs> Um, oh dear. I don't know anything about Julie Harris, but you know, uh, you, you'd imagine she had a similar kind, kind of life. Steve Grant, though, um, he's one of the few people in those days who had really gleaming white teeth. Um, he's got a kind of um, Roberto Firmino look yes. going on with his with his teeth. Uh, you just didn't see that these days. It's ten a penny. You know, mm. any any sort of minor member of Love Island has probably got that. But um, Yes. My other favourite tight fit fact is that they had a member called Silvio Gigante, or G- Gigante, which is an amazing name. So there we go. See, I like Steve because I get the impression 
he just doesn't give a fuck. Yeah. You know, he yeah. knows he looks like a prize prick, but he's doing a job of work. Yes. Albeit not that well. Um, and, you know, the two women, they sort of look like footballers' wives, mm. 1982 style as well. Like they should be in a shoot magazine standing outside a, yeah. a detached five bedroom house, yes. you know, with her arm around Dennis Mortimer in a Pringle, yeah. you know. But they're all right. If you went and got your hair cut by them, It'd be perfectly pleasant. Yes. Although they they would do it like David Van Day's, regardless of what you <laughs> asked for. But the things I like about this record, first of all, uh, in stealing from ABBA so shamelessly and so completely, yeah. it makes itself better than it should yes. be. Because it's just sort of picked up a bit of that sort of complex and wistful melodic sense. Yeah. Uh, and secondly... Uh, it's Fantasy Island. It's about a dream of something and there's stupid plastic cut palm trees in the background. Yes. It's all imaginary, <laughs> which is preferable to those pop videos you always get now. Have you seen these where it's basically a moving Instagram feed mm. of very posh young millennials on unimaginably expensive holidays, right? Whenever I'm in the gym, they've got the music oh. videos. On. It's, uh, there's so many of these. Like a idiot... Posh bloke in horrible calf-length trousers and no socks, right? And a, a sort of brainless, horsey, blonde, posh girl in a bikini, like taking selfies mm. while pulling a grotesque face and throwing a peace sign, you know. Yeah. Just these upper-middle-class scum defiling a tropical paradise yes. with their oblivious narcissism and learning nothing and understanding nothing, just communicating their um, their empty unearned smug pleasure and that's the video right it's about as far from an artistic statement as you can get mm. so give me these brian rogers connection rejects any day with their non-existent holiday on a non-existent island mugging like children's entertainers and miming in front of a couple of mock palm trees where the trunk isn't even connected to the fronds any day yeah, it is um, about dreams, and um, it it makes me dream. It's I think it's dreams of Europe. That's what I think it is. Yeah, because even though they have this profoundly British backstory, they as a, as a kind of visual phenomenon, and you know where, everything about their backstory, they could not be more British. It's British light and entertainment mm. to the bone. But the record, well, it's literally European. Cause yes, it's it is. By, yeah, by, uh, by by Dutch people, and you know it's it's channeling ABBA big time, mm. and. Um, the fact that it's singing about sort of you know um, tropical settings is neither here nor there. I, it makes me think of Northern Europe and of you know chill winds and frost and snow in in a good way. It's it's got a bit a bit of that kind of um, Abba's ironically titled Summer Night City, which is going kind to of one of the least summery records ever. Um, so it's 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 a it's one of those fascinating one-offs in pop where um, a band who've never done anything good before, never do anything good afterwards, just suddenly out of nowhere um, make a, a, an astonishing record. Yeah, the thing that lets this down for me is the fucking song's called Fantasy Island, and Steve Grant looks like a new romantic Robinson Crusoe when he really should have been Mr. Rourke, and those two women should have been Tattoo, <laughs> yeah. not not the Russian Tattoo, um, at her villa chaise or whatever it's yeah, called. Yeah, yeah. Missed opportunity there. So the following week, Fantasy Island soared 17 places to number 15 and would eventually get to number five for two weeks. The follow-up 
Secret Heart stalled at number 41 in August of this year, and after their debut LP only got to number 87, Denise and Julie left the group, claiming they weren't getting any royalties and were on a mingy wage. Two new female singers were drafted in, but after their next single, I'm Undecided, failed to chart, they packed it in. Freeze Green ended up working with Talk Talk, Steve Grant went back to musical theatre, and Julie Harris changed her name to Chopper Harris. <laughs> and the latter two reunited briefly to perform on a charity single, which we will talk about later on. The group reformed in 2010 and trademarked the name Tightfit, so you can fuck off David Van Day. And they're still active on the 80s revival circuit, but Steve Harris still has to deny the rumour that he died in the mid-80s because so many people still confuse him with Jimmy McShane of Baltimore. <laughs> yeah. So this charity single, Simon... Yeah, this must be one of the ropiest um, charity singles ever made. I know that in a previous chart music, we talked about the uh, the, the Bradford Fire charity song, yeah. and that was a very odd lineup. Uh, but mm. this, I think, outdoes it. Um, what it is, it's um, called "Doctor in Distress" by Who Cares, um, and it's an Ian. <laughs> oh, yes. It's an Ian Levine production, and it's aimed yes. at saving Doctor Who from cancellation by the BBC and also raising some money for cancer research on the side. And um, it was considered so awful that BBC wouldn't even play it. I mean, obviously there are reasons why they wouldn't play it because it's yeah. effectively an attack on them. Um, but I've got the list here of, of the people who are on it and go bar on. barrel scrapings doesn't do it justice. Right, here we go. <laughs> right. Uh, Faith, no, hang on, not even Faith Brown first. The first is Erlene Bentley. Nope, no idea. Uh, Faith Brown, comedian. Um, oh. Mikkel, or is it Michael Brown, the high energy singer? Right. Warren Can from Ultravox. Mm. Hazel Dean. Yeah. Floyd Pierce from Hot Gossip. Oh. Bobby G from Bucks Fizz. Oh. Jonah Louie. <gasps> Phyllis Nelson. Fuck. Richie Pitts from the cast of the stage musical Starlight Express. Oh. John Rocker from Free EEs. <laughs> Sally Thompson, actress. No. Oh, yeah. Near the front in the video, you'll be yes, surprised. I bet. Wait for it, wait for it. David Van Day from Dollar. Of course, David Van Day from Dollar. And members of Matt Bianco, that's Basher and Danny. Um, <gasps> members of the Moody Blues, Justin Hayward and <laughs> John Lodge. Who would have thought John Lodge would get mentioned twice on a chart music? Yeah. Um, members of Tight Fit, of course, Steve Grant yeah. and Julie Harris. And, right, Taylor will enjoy this. Members of Time UK. Rick Buckler, <gasps> Ronnie Ball, Good. Jimmy Richards, Ray Simone, Nick Smith, and Fletcher Christian. There was a no. member of Time UK, Rick Buckler's post-jam band, called Fletcher Christian. And that Jesus. is it. That is your charity single lineup. there. That is incredible. I had no idea that Rick Buckler was on that record. No. <laughs> None at all. Well, come on, man. Yeah, <laughs> Sending his love down the well. The best thing about that record is that, you know, they have to have the Bono bit. You know, when he does yeah. the, tonight, thank God it's there. So the, Faith Brown gets the Bono bit on that record <laughs> where she gets to go, no, 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 uh, do a bit of vocal style. Um, all the lyrics are about the glorious history of Doctor Who. It goes, uh, there was the something, something, and the master and a canine computer. Each screaming girl just hoped that a Yeti wouldn't shoot her. <laughs> <laughs> Ha, 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 ha. 
slide because it's taken three and a half minutes for Glenn and Ray to get over there. They're with Chaz and Dave with Tottenham Hotspur single, which is called Tottenham, Tottenham! Right? Bates, with some real-life women, not stewardesses or zoo wankers, bangs on about how live everything is before introducing Tottenham Tottenham by Chaz and Dave with Tottenham Hotspur. Formed in London in 1975, Chaz Hodges and Dave Peacock were two session musicians who had worked with Joe Meek, Jerry Lee Lewis, Albert Lee, Richie Blackmore and, it goes without saying, La Bicifre, whose song I Got The was sampled by Eminem on My Name Is. After teaming up with drummer Mick Burt, they were championed by the DJs Charlie Gillett and John Peel and were encouraged to delve into their London roots, so they invented the genre known as Rockne, eventually making the top 40 in June of 1979 with Gercher. After two more top 40 hits, they took a group who'd been going since 1882 but had failed to register a chart hit, Tottenham Hotspur, and brought them under their wing and wrote and co-performed Ozzy's Dream, which got to number five for two weeks in May of 1981. This is the follow-up, and it's up this week from number 43 to number 30. Before we pile into it, chaps, just want to clear a couple of things up. Um, If you think that um, Tottenham Hotspur had a chart hit before that, you're thinking of Nice One Cyril by the Cockrell Chorus, which had nothing to do with the club. Tottenham Hotspur did try an official song called Hot Spurs Boogie, but it failed to chart. First of all, you're not meant to notice that these supposed Cockney or, if you will, Rockney heroes from the old East End are fans of a team that's supported only in the far north of London and much of Hertfordshire. So if you do come from the East End, you support West Ham or, if you're not white, Arsenal. Or if you're in the very easternmost tip, you might support Leighton Orient. This is about as simple as the London football map gets, right? There's not a lot of crossover in these. One or two Millwall not much else. Um, I can't believe they're welcoming their local glowing, smoke-filled gin palace ever again after yeah. turning up on TV singing Tottenham, Tottenham. Two years in a row as well. I know. Yeah. Yeah. I was shocked. I was shocked to discover Chaz and Dave didn't support West Ham. Yeah, but it's because they're not from the East End. Where they're from? They're from Edmonton. Yeah, and... one's from Edmonton and the other's from Enfield, which is absolutely Spurs country. Nobody yes. supports anything but Spurs there. Um, yeah. But it's absolutely not Cockney. Although, yeah. ironically, looking at them, they both look very much at home around modern day Bethnal Green, Hackney, Shoreditch, yeah. where that look is popular all over again. Yes. Also as a kind very of much so. costume for the comfortably on. Yeah, but this song, I mean, Ozzy's Dream was... It was a decent enough football song. I mean, we know, as we know, it's hard to judge football songs because, you know, number one, they're usually done by teams that we don't support. And number two, they're cat shit usually. But I think Ozzy's Dream caught a moment and and, and did it well. Even though it, it obliged Osvaldo Ardiles, who was doing his best 
to learn English pronunciation to do a kind of racist impression of himself and pronounce Tottenham as Tottingham, even though he was perfectly capable of saying it. Yes, way. yes, that's that's very true. And of course, you know, it's turned into Aussie's nightmare, isn't it? He's because uh, the Falklands War, he's had to piss off to Paris Saint Germain. And they show Ricky Villa's goal in the in the um, in the clip here as well. Of course, they do. Yes, the previous the previous year's FA Cup final. Um, yeah. So you know, I, even though he's a, an an, an RG, um, mm. they uh, yeah, he's the, a good the, the Spurs. Yeah, he's he's all right. Yeah, yeah. He <laughs> still he scored that he's, amazing goal. He's still he's still on the books at Tottenham, but uh, he's not in the he's not in the studio. In case, just in case Ken Bailey bites his neck or something. To be honest, he was never a, a regular in that Tottenham side anyway. He didn't didn't yeah. settle quite yeah. as well as uh, Ozzy Ardiles, who uh, was quite ingratiating, actually. There's a, a questionnaire with him from Shoot magazine shortly after he arrived <laughs> in Britain, and it says, who would you most like to meet? And his answer is, Her Majesty the Queen. Yeah, I think Ricky Villa was almost brought along to keep Ardiles company in the way that... Yeah. Um, it's, it's, I think it's quite commonplace these days that clubs do that. If they buy a massive star player um, from another country who doesn't speak English very well. I think Man United might have done it with Cristiano Ronaldo. They might have brought some other hapless youth player in who was you know was never going to make the grade but they were his mate yeah and, you know they spoke Portuguese what a fucking waste um, of money when they could have just bought a big mirror <laughs> <laughs> um around this time 1982 I think there was a sense that Spurs were everyone's second team mm. because um they played with a lot of flair and excitement yeah. and and they were only ever going to win the odd cup they were never going to be a threat to think they're not going to be a threat to the states quo. So if you supported one of the big clubs, mm. you know you didn't have to look over your shoulder at Spurs. They were never going to do anything, you no. know. Um, but they were quite fun to watch. Yeah, but I'm saying that there's probably people, including our own David Stubbs, are absolutely cursing at the, the at the speakers when I'm, when I'm saying that. There was a period in the uh, early nineties, late eighties, early nineties, where I hated Spurs, particularly for fucking up Brian Clough's retirement plans. But uh, to me, they've always been seen as shaking Arsenal. <laughs> no, no offense to any Tottenham supporter listening to this, but you know that's that's what you've been for for such a long time. I don't know, man. Around this time, I think they played with a certain kind of swashbuckling style. Yes, which Arsenal never did. Arsenal were very much, you know, they say the Church of England is the Conservative Party at prayer. Yeah. I think Arsenal um, have always been the Conservative Party at play. Oh, um, thank God, and, David yeah. isn't on. Hi, David. Um, yeah, but but I, th- I think I think Spurs they sort of played sexy football, rock and roll football, whatever um, around that time. So it's people like Hoddle and Steve Archibald. We've seen Garth Crooks. Yeah, um, Mark Falco was he in the team around that time? Yes. Um, and yeah, I, th- I think there was something quite likable about them. But having said that, um, the FA Cup final that this is building up to, I wanted QPR to win. Mm. Um, I-, I had a soft spot for QPR already from. Um, a few years earlier when yeah. they were amazing, you yes. know, from, from the mid-70s. Istanbul's era, um, yes. <clears throat> Istanbul's Jerry Francis and all of that. Um, but also, I think I really warmed to them around this time because, you know, in Shoot Magazine, on the back page, they had Focus On and it was a questionnaire with, yeah. with a player. Um, they had one with, um, they had one of these questionnaires with, with QPR's goalkeeper, Peter Hooker. And um, one of the questions they ask everyone is, what is your nickname? And he just put, unprintable. Yeah. <laughs> and that cracked me up. Peter Hooker. Yeah. All right. Yeah, I can see where that's going. This song, though, how does it compare with Ozzy's Dream? Not as good. No. Having no. said that, I was in the pub last night, um, having already watched this episode, and 
I was uh, um, talking to a friend of mine who's a Tottenham fan, and I mentioned this, and I, I start singing the chorus, and it's been stuck in my head ever since. Yeah, it is. <laughs> it's a bit of an earworm, to be fair. It's vastly superior to this time because it is. It's just a fucking song you sing when you're pissed up. You can imagine the you can imagine the club singing this in the coach with a few crates of long life stowed in the aisles. Well, Chaz and Dave know what they're doing. Yes, I mean. They're yeah. already in the charts um, with Ain't No Pleasing You, which is a brilliant song. Got to number two was held off number one by My Camera Never Lies by Bugs Fizz. Yeah, they're sort of like a, like an English Sly and Robbie. Do you know what I mean? Yes. Like different yeah. instruments, but yeah, yeah. the same sort, of, uh, same sort of thing. You you know what you're getting if you book Chaz and Dave. Although, yeah. there's a quick shot of the drummer, N, um, in the middle yeah. of this. And he's a, <laughs> a deeply sinister man. He really, he yes. only killed his own kind, but you, yeah. Yes. <laughs> and it also, it's in, impossible to look at Chaz Hodges without imagining his pubic hair. Um, because just because of the visual cue. I don't know, I, I find it perfectly possible, actually. <laughs> He's got a visual cue all over his face and swarming out the top of his open neck shirt. It's not pleasant. <laughs> Uh, I, I've actually seen Chaz and Dave live um, a couple of times, and they are really great. Like they're just such yeah, good fun. Yeah, I can believe it. Yeah, um, you, you can you can imagine um, you you sort of go in there knowing exactly what you're going to get, and just people are just standing on tables shouting along. It's just absolutely fantastic. They were. Um, it's funny that you mentioned kind of hipster types adopting that look. They were adopted uh, Chaz and Dave by that kind of libertines crowd oh, for a bit, weren't God. they? Do you remember that? It was um, in the in the early noughties. Um, they ended up supporting the Libertines several times, and um, I actually had to go and see the Libertines on their comeback at Alexandra Palace for for work. And if you know the layout of Alexandra Palace, there's a massive bar area, massive sort of atrium, um, and Chaz Hodges was just plonked in the middle of that with a piano. No, no, Dave, just Chaz, and um, so he didn't even have a stage. He was just in the middle of this huge bar. And people were gathered around him, and it was just, I mean, obviously better than the Libertines. Um, and even though I was meant to be reviewing the Libertines gig, I, I snuck out several times and just stood and watched him. He's fantastic. But the Tottenham Hotspur, they've done the right thing here, haven't they? Get people who know what the fucking going on about in. Yeah, although there's always been a definite mismatch between the footballing culture of Tottenham Hotspur and the reality of most of their fans, as far as I can tell. I mean, yeah, like Simon's saying, they're a club... Even in the dark days of English football, you know, they rarely played ugly. I mean, they were like most London clubs. They were flashy but fragile when it mattered. Um, mm. Whenever you meet their fans, they quite often seem to be sort of slightly disagreeable, you know. Um, and there's always been that weird spiviness about the club as well with people like Irving Scholar and Terry Venables, you know, Alan Sugar. I mean, they pretty much invented the modern model of a football club as a business long before you know man united and everyone went down that road um but the thing is nothing none of nothing popularly associated with the club is really reflected in this record right because whether you love or hate spurs a cheap and tatty good-natured knees up doesn't seem like a very spursy thing if you wanted to really reflect no tottenham Hotspur, you'd want a kind of a sweet silky smooth pop classic which just as it gets to the last chorus goes <laughs> and just falls apart I've got to say though the quality of the jumpers on the Spurs team are a lot superior are massively superior to the England ones aren't they if we're going to talk about who's on stage and what they're wearing we've got to get into this there are um, mm. 
They're accompanied by female dancers. Yes. I mean, I'm assuming these are not the Tottenham Hotspur ladies team. Um, they're female dancers in a yellow Spurs away kit mm. with sexy white suspenders and stockings underneath. Yeah. Um, which is, it's the sort of thing that Loaded yes. used to run as a yes. photo spread. And it's also, this is what Sepp Blatter wanted women's football <laughs> to be like. Basically. Who are those women anyway? Because they're not zoo. Um, no. I mean, they look like they might just be locals that they've persuaded yes. to dress like sort of Tottenham stripper ground. <laughs> I mean, they definitely yes. seem like London girls, like in all the good yeah. ways and the bad ways. You know, they're quite brassy. Uh, yes. possibly over brassy, but there'd be a laugh. Yeah. And some have got shorts on and some have elected to uh, to disregard the shorts. Yeah, yeah. No, they're good. I, they look, they, somehow noticed. They look like there'd be a laugh, but they wouldn't take any shit. You know, like yes. they're, they're brothers in prison. You know what I mean? The real yes. London girls. Um, yeah. But yeah. And I, the fact that two of them are draped over goth crooks would yeah. have, you know, confused and angered many a dad in the... Uh, <laughs> My favourite... My favourite thing about this clip is Garth Crooks singing with the same dogged sincerity with which yes. he did and does yes. everything else. Yes. <laughs> Fantastic. Oh, and the other best thing about this is when Bates does the intro, he does a sort of condescending London voice. Do you know this? Yes. Sort of like, Tottenham, Tottenham, hey, right? Like as if he's backing away from them in a pub. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> the thing about Garth Crooks, though, is that because of his kind of like his, his puffy eyes and his pouty mouth, you, you can just see him in a in a powdered wig at some French court or <laughs> or in the Johnson crew. <laughs> Anything uh, else to say uh, about this? No. No. The following week, Tottenham, Tottenham jumped 11 places to number 19, its highest position. I think you'll note that QPR didn't do a single of their own, unless, of course, you know better. They went on to win the FA Cup that year after a replay, and the follow-up, Hot Shot Tottenham, got to number 18 in May of 1987, and this cipher would have another go when the year ends in one in 1991, but it's only got to number 44. It's 16 minutes away from eight, so Tottenham and Tottenham and the single. We might as well now, since it is 16 minutes to eight, have a look at what position it is in this week's UK Top 20. Tottenham Hotspur is trained in at number 30 with Tottenham Tottenham, Cat People and Bowie at 29. At number 28, more than this at Roxy Music. A new entry, Patrice Russian with Forget Me Nots at 27. And at 26, my camera never lies, Bucks Fitz. In comes Queen, Body Language at number 25, Nightbirds and Shack Attack at 24, and at 23, a new entry, Stay, Barry Manilow. Jazz and Dave, Ain't No Pleasing You at 22, and in at 21, Shout Shout from Rocky Sharp and the Replays. I wondered where these girls had gone to. Now they're back to 27 years, Patrice Russian. Beautiful song. It's called Forget Me Not, so she's just below your line of vision. After doing a time check, 
Bates runs down the top 30 from number 30 to number 21. And of course, with every single episode of Chart Music, we have to step away and discuss various things regarding the chart rundown. Anybody? Yeah, first of all, the extraordinarily convoluted and incoherent introduction from Bates, who's supposed to be a professional broadcaster. Yes. Um, And he's got all those... It just time checks all the fucking time. I know, well, it's because it's live, and he thinks it makes it seem exciting and live. It's like, you should do (sighs) this. It's like, no, it's it's, uh, just coming up to uh, quarter five. Yeah, Uh, it's... He might as well have held up a copy of that day's evening standard, like, you know, kidnap victims <laughs> do. And it, it makes him fuck up the start of the actual chart countdown, doesn't it? Because he stumbles over yes. trying yeah. to say 16 minutes to eight in various different ways. And then he fucks up the first. Yeah. Bit. yeah. And he's got all those zoo zeros around him. And yeah. what's weird is they're all pulling random facial expressions at yeah. weird times to make it look as if they're listening to him. When in yeah. fact. They look sort of like android prototypes, you know, which yeah. in 10 years' time would look hilariously primitive. Yeah. Like really bad reaction things in a, in a school play. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Downtown Judy Brown does exactly that. She does a sort of a, ooh, face, yes. but in response to <laughs> yeah. nothing. Yes. Yeah. And in the chart rundown, uh, you get to see Chaz and Dave proving that nothing says class like white jackets with black shirts and piano keyboard ties. <laughs> oh, but yes. The best thing about that picture is that N has gone the extra mile and he's also got a pair of mirrored shades and a trilby <laughs> for the complete yes. look. So a very, very specific look, which can be summed up in two words, still rocking. Yes. <laughs> yeah, N is very much the Ken from Bross of Chaz and Dave, isn't he? Or, um, yes. or the one from Right Said Fred who had hair. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And the one in ZZ Top yeah. who oh, didn't have a beard, but was called Beard. Yeah. In the, the, the England World Cup squad, the picture is the illustration from the front cover of the album. Um, which is like one of those 70s film yes. posters where it's like probably done by an Italian artist going yes. on the style. And it's a, a collage of England players' sort of disembodied heads and shoulders yeah. uh, arranged around a giant Keegan with arms aloft. And it's all sort of arranged symmetrically. So it looks like some kind of hideous cockroach butterfly yes. with... Kevin Keegan's massive head as the head. Yes. Um, it, the players as the wings. Keegan's neck as the thorax. And then the World Cup as a, a hardened golden abdomen. We form like Voltron and Kegger is the head. <laughs> yeah, and you know, like insects have those markings that are meant to scare off predators. And that, you know, um, <laughs> Phil Thompson is there for that purpose. Yes. yes. <laughs> So eventually Bates introduces Forget-Me-Nots by Patrice Russian. Born in Los Angeles in 1954, Patrice Russian was a session singer and jazz pianist who was enrolled into music classes at the University of Southern California at the age of three and put her first LP out in 1973. After changing labels in the late 70s, she moved from jazz to disco and spent the next five years chasing down a hit. She nearly managed it in the UK in 1980 and 1981, but never managed to crack the top 60. Then, in 1982, she offered up this song from her seventh LP as a potential single, but it was knocked back by her label, Electra. 
However, she put her foot down and it became her first US hit. In the meantime, it's gone up over here this week from number 37 to number 27. And before we get into the song, I think we need to discuss something that happens that just absolutely crystallises the zoo relationship with the general public. Because that blonde zoo wanker who I discovered later went on to portray Sharon in the What Known Meat advert for British Beef, <laughs> leaves Bates' side and barges a chunky woman in a raw-raw skirt and gold crown who is going absolutely batty at her own reflection in the monitors in order to join her cuntish friends for another Smarties party. <laughs> Did you see that's that? The, no. Yeah, that's the second most disgusting thing that happens during that intro after Ken Bailey putting his hand on a young woman's shoulder. Oh, yes. The repulsive fucking zombie. <laughs> Zoo are basically acting a, as a crazy mates, aren't they, in this? Yeah. Well, Zoo are off in one corner on a little podium. Mm. Um, and Patrice is surrounded by that sort of middle tier. Yes. Whoever the <clears throat> hell they are. Yeah. There's like John Aldridge dressed as a bowl of custard. Yeah. Oh, he's <laughs> and, terrible, uh, he is. Yeah, uh, the, the attack of the 50-foot woman in the pink spangly dress. Yeah, oh, God, uh, yeah. But there's also a tall yeah. black lad at the back in a suit and a red bow tie, and he, he looks like he's a member of the Nation of Islam. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and Mr. Lemon and Lime in the yellow and green, like, ground oh, yeah. trapping. Yeah. yeah, there is a lot of yellow and green, like I was saying earlier, and there's yeah. a lot of quality street rappers going on. Yeah, yeah it's it's peak 80s, peak early 80s, I think. This. Yeah. It's, it is that whole thing that I was saying about... 82 being um, forever Saturday. It's 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 a very Saturday look going on with that crowd. But um, Patrice Russian, she's kind of like wearing white culottes and uh, she appears to have half the Franklin mint in her hair. Yeah. <laughs> it's, the, it's the era, we're still, we're still in that Floella Benjamin era, but it's moved from the kind of the, the beads to just crazy shit. Yeah, she'd have a hard time these days getting through airport security yeah. both for metallic reasons and weight reasons. Yeah. And, you know, obstacle courses. You know, going underneath Indeed, them nets yeah. should be fucked. But yeah. don't you think she has possibly the most instantly likeable presence yes. of any performer I've ever seen? Like, I mean, aside from that, it's an, an amazing record. Who could fail to feel an instant warmth towards her? As soon as you see her charming yeah. demeanour and despite the fact she's wearing a white dress with grey tights, which is yeah. a, a, a courageous fashion choice, she looks like someone you could never dislike or mm. stay angry with, Yeah, which is as good as anything. I mean, it's... Uh, Particularly when contrasted with zoo wankers. Oh, yeah. Yeah, those zoo animals. Yes. <laughs> yeah, she's a, she's a... Seems like a really nicely brought up young woman. Yeah. Proof that... Uh, yes, indeed. The Russians love their children too. Hey! Oh, very good. I'm currently appearing in summer season at the Royal London Hospital Whitechapel. <laughs> but her dancing and her general performance is really vague. And I think that might be because she's really a pianist yes. and a keyboard player. And whenever you see them, when they come out from behind something, they never know quite what to do with themselves. Yeah, The song, though, it's fucking mint, isn't it? Yes. No. No? I know, I'm sorry. I feel the same way about this that I feel about Mama used to say. Very similar feeling it gives me, actually. I didn't know we'd got Morrissey on chart music this week. (laughs) Pricey scene. No, um, I I had this thing, and I still do, I suppose, about cold and warm music, and this felt cold to me. Um, 
I just, yeah, I I can see that there's almost nothing wrong with it, um, just as I can with uh, Mama used to say. Um, I think maybe I I was slightly put off by the way she doesn't enunciate all the words, so I can never figure out what she's singing. It's like, mm. what? What what are you singing? Um, she, yeah, she I don't know. She sings it just... like Ken Bailey talks. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, let's face it, Simon. She's in colour. So you're obviously against it from the off, aren't you? Uh, yeah, I can see where you're going with this. Yeah, yeah. Basically, yeah. the idea that uh, as a, um, a a sort of indie snob, or uh, I wasn't even one yet, but I was probably going to become one. Uh, I, 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 preferred, <laughs> I preferred black music if it was done uh, before uh, colour photography came in. Um, mm. Yeah, that's probably a fair accusation, although I'm sure I could come up with loads of... Uh, examples of black music of that era that I absolutely loved but just it so happens that this ep- just a bit too sophisticated I think there might be something in that yeah, that it? yeah there was a certain kind of idea that um, the world of the people who were into this was unreachable to me and I didn't really want to reach it either um, as mm. Taylor said about Junior Giscombe it's very south of England even though it's made by somebody from America the sort of people who it would appeal to over here it was you know very, very much South of England thing, and um, mm. yeah, I, I I suppose in in retrospect, it's it's been made even worse by the Will Smith sampling, Men in, Men in Black. Yeah, well, this is one of those songs yeah. like um, "She's Fine, She's Mine" by Bo Diddley or uh, "Rapper's Delight," where there's like a whole tree of other songs growing out the top of it. You know what I mean? It's like a mother load. It's a, mm. a lot of her stuff's been sampled, and you can see why. Oh, George Michael, didn't he? he George yeah, George Michael did it yeah. too. Yes. It's, you can see That's why love. she was a popular target for sampling, because a lot of her other stuff is quite plain and smooth. It's like a plain, smooth background against which you can do your own thing. Um, a lot of her other records are a bit mm. too smooth for me. But this is the one that really leaps out. I mean, in fairness... Um, in 1982, this would have sounded like room noise to me. Um, but now yeah. it's like sonic yeah. ambrosia. You know, there's zero negative aspects. It's just like a uh, like an instant cleansing breeze through the soul. It's one of those records. It just does one thing, mm. um, and it tints the air and makes everything beautiful. And it's got that bass by uh, yeah. Freddie Washington, which is the whole song is really just a, yeah. a cradle for that bass line, which is the real lead part on this record. Yeah. And the song is just a groove, but yeah. that's all it has to be. And in fact, the 12 inch is better because it's yeah. just this, but longer, which feels completely natural because it's mm. like an endless, uh, edgeless groove. If you had the 12 inch of this just playing forever, just there, your life would improve <laughs> immeasurably. I've changed my mind. I like it now. Oh, there you go. Yeah. I th- no, you've convinced me. I think you're right. Yeah, okay. Because because Simon, I would have I would have dismissed this as funky belt music uh, <laughs> back in the day as well, you know. So yeah, good. Well <laughs> done, everyone. So who says this podcast doesn't achieve anything? The following week, Forget Me Nots rocketed up sixteen places to number eleven and would eventually get to number eight. The follow up, I was tired of being alone, got to number thirty nine in July of this year, and that was her last brush with the top forty. But forget-me-nots would be covered, stroke fucked with by George Michael for Fast Love and Will Smith for Men in Black. And Patrice Russian went on to become the musical director for the Grammys and a soundtrack composer. 
more guests on top of the pops. Here's Steve Archibald. Steve. Hello, Simon. Isn't it about time you sang? Yes, well, let me ask. In that case, here is a Scottish thing to put round your head. Get off with yourself and come back after the charts from number 20. It's Dollar at number 20 with Give Me Back My Heart. Elton John's Blue Eyes at number 19. Climb of eight places for Hot Chocolate and Girl Crazy to 18. At 17, up five places, Bandau Ballet and Instinction. Kim Wilde's View from a Bridge is at number 16. And Simple Minds, up four places with Promised You a Miracle to 15. Yazoo, straight in with Only You at 14. The Scottish Cup Squad at number 13 with We Have a Dream. Monsoon, ever so lonely at 12. And at number 11, it's Shaken Stevens and Shirley. It's getting to be chaos in this place. Ladies and gentlemen, they said it couldn't be done live, but it is being done live. John Gordon Sinclair with the Scotland World Cup. And I have a dream. Bates has a fucking excruciating interview session with Steve Archibald and drapes a tartan scarf around his airy neck before running the chart down from number 20 to number 11, describing the next act as the Scottish Cup squad before introducing them proper as the Scotland World Cup. It's actually the Scotland World Cup squad and we have a dream. There's two things about this. First of all, Steve Archibald responds to Simon Bates' greeting as if he knows that Bates has been fucking his wife, but he also yes. knows that Bates doesn't know that he knows. Right? Yeah. <laughs> He's like not looking at him, biding his time, you know. Um, and the other thing is that Simon Bates forgets the word scarf. He, he drapes yes. the scarf around his neck and says, here's yes. a Scottish thing to put round your neck. Yes, and he has a the Scottish thing. <laughs> it's a blank but very tense face. Like the word scarf is just drifting away out of reach. It's like yeah. uh, flowers for Algernon. There's a horror film called Pontypool, um, a Canadian indie horror film, where basically yeah. that happens, where this kind of... Uh, virus by which people just lose words it just sort of starts dropping out of their minds and, and it's as if uh, Simon Bates is showing the first signs of, of being a sufferer from that yeah or, he, or he's just returning to his primal state as a and now yes. I think about it it's actually set in a radio station so it's like closer and closer yeah yeah really good film anyway it's, all, it's more like he's returning to his primal state as a, a lumbering beast in tinted spectacles, you know, like he's losing the power of speech, and soon he'll just be emitting a tortured roar with the hour tune music playing in the background. But he gets close because he also is unable to say the phrase the Scottish World Cup squad. Because yes. in the chart rundown... Well, it describes the next act uh, in the chart rundown as the Scottish Cup squad. Yes. Yeah. But then he introduces them proper as the Scottish World Cup. Yes. <laughs> what the fuck? 
So just those four words, Scottish <laughs> World Cup squad. He's incapable yeah, of stringing together. It's terrible. It's actually the Scotland World Cup squad and we have a dream. Formed in Glasgow in 1873, yeah. Scotland went 99 years without a hit record <laughs> until they teamed up with Bill Martin and Phil Coulter, who wrote Congratulations for Cliff Richard and Puppet on a String for Sandy Shaw in the late 60s and Saturday Night for the Bay City Rollers in the early 70s and put out Easy Easy, which got to number 20 in June of 1974. After four years of inactivity, they linked up with Rod Stewart for Ole Ola, Mulha Brasileira, which means Brazilian woman, which I don't know what the fuck has to do with an Argentinian World Cup. But it went all the way to number four in June of 1978. But sadly, band member Willie Johnson was forced out a few weeks later due to substance issues. (laughs) This is a belated follow-up. Written by B.A. Robertson and fronted by John Gordon Sinclair, who has just starred in the surprise hit football-related film Gregory's Girl. And it's up this week from number 24 to number 13. And again, a smart move, having a non-footballer handling the main work. Because Gregory's Girl was fucking... Everyone loved that, didn't they, in 1982? Yeah, it's a brilliant film. Um, But you say that, you know, having a pro fronting it. Well... Simon Bates makes a big deal of saying they said it couldn't be done live, but you know here it is. Well, I think um, John Gordon Sinclair yeah. proves that it- maybe he was talking about his performance. Huh. Yeah, exactly. I think, um, and it couldn't be done live in Simon Bates's case. Sinclair uh, proves that you can't do that song live because his lip syncing mm. to his own uh, narration at the start is all over the fucking place, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yes. Yeah. I could never watch Gregory's Girl because I found him too annoying, to be honest. Right. But to be honest, I no longer have room in my heart to hate him or anyone else after watching this masterclass <laughs> in backseat cunting. Yes. Like, it was bad enough. I mean, we complain about the England squad selling out to BA. Mm. Well, yes. the Scotland squad have associated with an even worse BA. Yes. Um, <laughs> And you look at him in this clip and he's trying to hog your attention yes. and upstage yes. John Gordon Sinclair yeah. by being as much of a cunt as possible. Yes. In the, I think he's pissed. I don't know, but he... There have been three football teams in this episode of Top of the Box. The fucking barbell. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus Christ. Yeah. But you look at him and it's like, B.A., can you not stop being a cunt for just a couple of minutes? But he can't do it. Yeah. Like even just just for twenty seconds at the start when yeah. uh, when when Sinclair is doing doing his bit. Even then, because um, Sinclair's in a spotlight, and then uh, the the players and all the other hangers on are sort of dimly lit in blue at the back. Even yeah. at that point, you can see Bay Robertson mugging and waving his arms around. Look at me! Look at me! Yeah. yeah there's yeah. just no way to yeah. adequately describe the sheer sheer cuntishness of B.A. Robertson in this clip. It's like his cuntishness <laughs> is man-spreading and, and, and yes. obscuring the cuntishness of all the other cunts in this cunt cluster, right? You could have had you could have had Ian Brady, uh, Dennis Nilsson, George Galloway, any cunt that's ever been Scottish standing in that stack <laughs> of swaying twats. And if you had... Six bullets, you put them all in B.A. Robertson, just to make sure. It's fucking horrendous. I'm the last one in the groin, just for kicks. (laughs) I would like to get B.A. Robertson and, like his A-team namesake, knock him unconscious and put him on a plane, but a plane with Mohammed Atta 
at the controls. I, <laughs> I would like to go back in time to when B.A. Robertson was a baby, pick him up by his ankles, swing him around and smack his head off a sink. Just do humanity a favour. It's ethics 101. I would have a duty if I found myself in Scotland in that time to do just that. Do you think he had any mates at all, apart from Noel Edmonds? Seriously. This is a great twist on the old conundrum of if you got if you went back in time, would you assassinate Hitler? And all yeah. yeah, I think proof that yeah. proof it's that amazing. the hum, human race will never invent time travel because if it did, yes. we would not be watching this now. <laughs> are, are we all agreed on the worst bit of B. A. Robertson's bellendery in this performance? All right. Well, I think it's the bit where Sinclair talks about the moment where he gets fouled in the box, and B. A. Yeah. Robertson goes. That's a penalty. And just the face he does at that moment, I want to punch him so hard. Yes. Do you think think that's a penalty is worse or better than that's brilliant? (laughs) It's a conundrum, isn't it? Yeah. We'll step away from BA for the moment. Discuss the song. Because to my mind, this is a far superior song to uh, either this time or England will fly the flag, simply because the expectations are much lowered, aren't they? In 1978, it was, oh, we're going to win, fucking easy. And now it's like, oh, I'm having a dream that Scotland are are, going to beat New Zealand with a jammy penalty. Yeah, and it's from the fans' point of view, isn't it? Yes. Rather than the players exactly. saying, we're so amazing. Exactly, yeah. yeah. It's like when Sly and the Family Stone went from stand to there's a riot going on, to my <laughs> mind. You know, it's, Interesting it's more downbeat, though. it's less celebratory, uh, and yeah, it, I'll, I'll stop now. Because <laughs> I'm not comparing B.A. Robertson to Sly and the Family Stone. Yeah. <laughs> no, I think you are, Al. I think you think they're exactly Yeah, the I was same. then, yeah. Yeah, I know that. But yeah, I mean, the, 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 the song is basically him having a dream uh, about playing for Scotland, and he, he gets a peno, and, uh, and the great... John Robertson, my favourite footballer of all time. I thought the we were going to get to this. The way he throws yeah. that ball to John Gordon Sinclair, fucking perfect. Yeah. What a man. Yeah. In the tournament, John Robertson goes on to score a beautiful goal against New Zealand. Yes. Do you remember? Yeah. Yes. Lovely free kick. And yeah. his here, Natalie turned out in a go for goals t shirt <laughs> with the, and the O's are uh, no smoking signs, with a pair of grey yes. slacks. It's beautiful. Yes. And he probably went off straight afterwards for a fag. He was a he was a proper chain. Robbo was. Yeah. Is it John Robinson who's a massive fan of ACDC? Or am I getting my no? That's John. Mixed? That's John McGovern. John McGovern. Never John mind. McGovern does, does does a does you know he, he's the right, impression yeah. of, of Brian Clough doing ACDC on the dance. Yes. Yeah, yes, he does. Yeah, Robbo uh, was a massive fan of Roxy Music. Oh. yeah. Cool. Good He's man. a lovely bloke. He's. I interviewed him. Uh, I've got I've got a photo of me as a 12-year-old holding up the European Cup in my dad's local in uh, Top Valley. And uh, I brought it along when I interviewed him. And I said, look, Robbo, this is my favourite photo of me ever. And the only reason it happened was because of you. So thank you very much for that. Can I have a photo of you holding this photo? And he said, yeah, of course you can. (laughs) Brilliant. Yeah. Oh, it's beautiful. Such a a nice bloke. And very kind of meta as well. Yes. But yeah, uh, who else is there then? Do you know who's not there, but is on the record? Yeah. Right? Boxer Jim Watt, jockey Willie Carson, and runner Alan Wells. <laughs> Jesus. Yeah. I didn't know that. 
randomly three successful Scottish sports people who have nothing to do with the football squad are on the record. But no, I think I think Scotland have outclassed the English here on this performance, even when encumbered by B.A. Robertson. Yeah. I'll tell you who else is not there um, is the Liverpool contingent. No Dalgleish, no Souness, no Hansen, as far as I can That's see. That's right, yeah. I wonder why. I looked into it and, you know, I couldn't see any reason. You know, there'd be no recent kind of cup final or anything else, anything like that no. that Liverpool were involved in. Very odd. But... Dalgleish, of course, uh, got dropped by Jock Steen for the tournament uh, and uh, yeah. brought on as a sub a couple of times. Shocking. I'll tell you who is there. Um, what I think are hostesses from British Caledonian Airways. Yes. Like just to keep, yes. up with the, keep up with the next door neighbours. Um, and it's not nice to talk about women in terms purely in terms of their appearance. But <laughs> on these football records, the women are only... Teddy, you've, you've, you've just told us you wanted to smash a baby's head against the yeah, sink. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so, you know, whatever you say now, is <laughs> just but go for it. Obviously, the women in these football records are only there as visual accessories. And um, yes. one of the British Caledonian Airways hostesses is stunningly beautiful and gives a genuinely, whoa, look to camera um, just before being obscured by B.A. Cunterson holding up a idiot board <laughs> with all the lyrics on. Fuck, you know, he's like the Ken oh, Bailey of, uh, of Scotland. Is <laughs> wasn't that no? Wasn't that wasn't that Sharon of, of what no meat fame again holding up the the banner at first? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. I know it's B.A. Yeah, it was. Who yeah, skewers this beautiful vision. Um, seriously, couldn't they not have got anyone else involved in this record? Well, he wrote the song, yeah, well, so but, you know. The Ken Bailey of Scotland. That's, see, this is a good idea. Rather than have the home internationals or any sort of yeah. England Scotland uh, football f- sporting fixtures, they should have just like locked uh, Ken Bailey and B. A. Robertson in a darkened yeah. room, like the yeah. Two Tribes video. Yeah, yeah. Yes. <laughs> but of course, um, someone else who is there is, uh, and it was bothering us because we didn't know him. He was a mixed race bloke in a kilt. Yeah. And uh, it turns out that he is Chris McClure, who was formerly of the Fireflies and the Chris McClure section, who became a solo singer uh, and just changed his name to Christian. And it, and he's still doing the club scene, you know, as we speak, which, oh. which, is, which is nice. But the other fact I gleaned from that is that he appeared, his band appeared on an STV pop show of the early 70s called Stramash, which is the fucking <laughs> best name for an early 70s name. pop show. Can you imagine how brilliant Stramash must have been? <laughs> so that's Scottish for like a bit of a uh, fisticuffs, isn't it? Yeah. 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 yeah, it's like yeah. if yeah. it was English, it would be called kerfuffle. Yes. <laughs> Although, no, really, it's, it's, it's good that this record was made by actual Scots because... Otherwise, we'd just have got all the usual stupid Scottish cliches of tartan tamo yeah, shanters like- and bagpipes and <laughs> large large groups of drunk men. So I was trying to look at the plays and figure out who they all are, and uh, it was yeah. fairly easy with the England lot. But I struggled yeah. a bit with these. There's uh, John Walk, I recognise. He's kind of unmistakable. I think he's 24 years old, but he looked about uh, 44 at the time. Yes. Um, You've got the aforementioned John Robertson. Uh, presumably, there are people like Aza Hartford, um, pantomime villain Joe Jordan, you'd think would be in there. Um, mm. The man with the most Scottish-sounding name ever, Danny McGrain. Yes. Um, maybe David Neary, who scored that amazing toe-poke yeah. goal against Brazil. Um, yeah. But, um, yeah, the, the hapless um, 
Alan Ruff um, is in there. He's the man who who spawned a thousand jokes about Scotland's dodgy keepers uh, yes. for, for years afterwards. Um, but I'm going to talk about Alan Brazil here, right? Yo. Because yeah, <laughs> Go on. Alan fucking Brazil. Um, obviously, nowadays better known as a, a radio presenter on Talk Sport. And um, I once had the job of reviewing um, his book uh, for When Saturday Comes magazine. Um, it was called there's um I think it's called there's an awful lot of bubbly in Brazil by oh. Alan Brazil and Mike Parry, right? In this book he reveals that during the uh, nineteen eighty two World Cup he went missing um and got drunk with his uh, hero Rod Stewart um uh, and and then went yeah basically went AWOL on a on an amphetamine binge, which was <laughs> apparently ac- accidental. He'd somehow managed to take speed accidentally. Um <laughs> Okay. There's uh he he played in the tournament. He he played uh, against the USSR, and uh, he started trying to um, undermine and unsettle the, Russian, the Soviet players. who probably couldn't understand him anyway by saying, "It's back to the salt mines for you tonight, pal. After we've <laughs> after we've wellied you, you commie tosser." <laughs> he's, he's 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 not known for his uh, uh, subtle um, handling of, of of racial or national matters, shall we say? No. Uh, he he once um, there's there's a bit in the book where he, he was in a America and he he calls his black limo driver Benson. Mm. Nice. That's um, Alan Brazil. Nice. There. It's funny you should Lovely. say that. I reviewed another one of his books for when Saturday comes. It was called Both Barrels oh from Brazil. Um, oh, yes, yeah, <laughs> this one I think he'd already told his life story, so most of this one was mm. devoted to uh, kind of witless right wing diatribes and uh, his yeah, uh, nice. his suggestion that. Uh, the NHS should be run by the head of a pharmaceutical company and uh, the country should be run by the CEO of Ryanair. Because <laughs> what could possibly go wrong? <laughs> Basically, the only good World Cup records ever have been the non-aligned... Uh, there's been... Uh, Dennis Al Capone, World Cup football, which is a fantastic yes. record. Despite its uh, suggestion that the only reason Ron Greenwood isn't playing Cyril Regis up front every game is because he's a racist. Um, yes. And uh, <laughs> Pam Pam Cameroon by Maccabee. Oh, which is of course. A wonderful of course. Uh, toasted history of Cameroon's uh, adventures in the 1990 World Cup, which reaches a frenzied yes. pitch as they go out to England. <laughs> and Maccabee suddenly starts going, England were lucky, lucky. lucky. They were lucky, lucky, lucky. England were very lucky, <laughs> lucky. Um, yeah, a genuine highlight in uh, popular music history. I think it's quite nice that Scotland can't feel hard done by about um, yeah. 82. because well, in Brazil's group. They knew they were fucked. I mean, they, they battered New Zealand. They were battered by Brazil and they were held 2-2 by USSR. And in the words of Tommy Doherty, home before yes. the postcards. Um, <laughs> which, so basically, it, it showed them their place. They yeah. know their place. And that yeah. was their and, place. And this so reflects in the yeah. song, doesn't it? So, yeah. But again, you know, they go on about, well, we'll bring it back for you. They, they can't... Has FIFA slapped down some ruling? Have they trademarked World Cup in World Cup songs? That's an interesting point, yeah. And yeah. of course, you know, we've got to mention that Northern Ireland... Uh, also had a World Cup song called Your Man, uh, which didn't make the charts, possibly because uh, they got Dana in. <laughs> and also because there's only about one and a half million yeah. of them. But they could have made an effort. 
Yeah. <laughs> so the following week, We Have a Dream leapt eight places to number five, its highest position, and three places higher than this time that week, which would have been, you know, that's, that's a victory, isn't it, for Scotland there. The follow-up, Big Trip to Mexico, only got to number 81 in April of 1986. They wouldn't bother the charts for another 10 years before they reunited with Rod Stewart and got Purple Heather to number 16 in June of 1996. Scotland World Cup squad, and in just a moment, I want you to meet someone rather special. She's an American lady who's just arrived, but now on top of the pops, it's back to the top ten of the charts. A fantastic day at number ten for Haircut 100. At number nine, I Can Make You Feel Good by Shalimar. Straight in, Eurovision winner Nicole with a little piece at number eight. Pig Bag, Papa's got a brand new pig bag at number seven. And at number six, One Step Further by Bardo. Bananarama and Funboy 3 are at number 5. And Joan Jett and the Blackhearts up 13 to number 4 with I Love Rock and Roll. PhD at number 3, I Won't Let You Down. And this time, Fly the Flag, the England World Cup squad at number 2. William E, ladies and gentlemen, just flown in literally from the States, Joan Jett. Hi, Joan, welcome. How are you doing? Are you going to do a session for us later so we can see you in live, so to speak, on Top of the Pops next week? Yes, next week. And tell me if you're going to tour in this country. Probably late summer. Yeah, we'll do a full scale. Full scale tour. You got 24 hours in this country. Joan Jett, at the number one at the moment in the UK. Bates, surrounded by the Spurs crumpetry, runs down the top ten before having a chat with Joan Jett, who swung by on a promotional binge for I Love Rock and Roll. Wow, what a combination <laughs> these two are, eh? You see her looking around, wondering what kind of diseased anti-rock and roll environment she's been shoved into, full of... Yes, you know, full of people dressed like East Germans, yeah. acting like they're seventy-four, um, and all these weird waxy dancers with their facial expressions bear no relation yeah. to anything that's happening around them, like just like traffic lights changing on a deserted high street at five a.m. and having to talk to a teacher. Yeah, this is what the nineteen eighty-six film Something Wild could have been. <laughs> You either think they're either going to go off in this really fucking screwball relationship or a flick knife's going to be pulled out at any moment. (laughs) Speaking of teachers, I had a teacher at my middle school who looked like Joan Jett. But Joan Jett, if she hadn't loved rock and roll. Um, Right. (laughs) (laughs) That's the thing about Joan Jett. At the time, I thought she looked really kind of mumsy. Yeah. um, I, I thought she was kind of out of step with the eighties. It's like she had seventies hair, and yeah. I, I assumed that because of that, she must have been quite old. And it turns out she was like twenty three or something. Yeah. <laughs> at this point, it's insane. Yeah, 
I think she's so cool though. I think she's amazing. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. My girlfriend's absolutely obsessed by her, so I get I get this stuff all the time. So is <laughs> my niece. Really, yeah. Yes. What, what, what a goddess Joan Jett is. Um And she promises a full scale tour. Yeah, full, full scale. scale. <laughs> it's weird though, you you find yourself in a room with Simon Bates and Ken Bailey. You start thinking maybe Kim Fowle is a nice guy after all. (laughs) (laughs) So eventually Bates introduces this week's number one, Ebonet and Ivory by Paul McCartney and Stevie Wonder. Paul McCartney and Stevie Wonder are Paul McFucking Cartney and Stevie Fucking Wonder. This song, which was originally recorded solo as a track for McCartney's forthcoming LP, Tug of War was, according to George Martin, inspired by Spike Milligan telling McCartney that you needed black notes and white notes to create harmony. The message is, racism, you can do one right now, please. (laughs) Realising that the song was crying out to be duetted, he cut Stevie Wonder in on the deal and they recorded it in Montserrat with George Martin producing. It knocked My Camera Never Lies by Bucks Fizz off the number one spot and this is its third week there and we're treated to the video which, due to the fact that neither of them had a matching window in their diaries, was recorded separately and put together by Magic. Oh, what a cod. Wow. Few people kind of like doing something together in separate rooms and never meeting. Oh, imagine <laughs> such a thing, eh? <laughs> Took me a second. I'll yeah. let Taylor come in first on this uh, yeah. in a bit because, after all, this was the first single he ever bought. But t- to my mind, the video, oh, yeah. uh, the, the bit on the giant keyboard always struck me as really fake anyway because, I mean, for fuck's sake, if you're walking on a massive keyboard, the first thing you're going to do is jump up and down on the keys like a bastard, aren't you? <laughs> for at least half an hour. I like that bit, though, because it reminds me of uh, when Mr. Greedy is on the giant's dinner table and there's <laughs> yes. like a massive sausage and yes. peas. So I, says, I guess that must be the the piano owned by uh, the owner of uh, Tracy Ullman's Detcher. Yes, and it also reminds me of Bernard Cribbins in the Hornby adverts <laughs> where he gets stalked by a cat and nearly yeah. run over by a train. <laughs> so Taylor, yeah, you're the first yeah. single you ever bought. This is your this is your end point as a as a true consumer of pop. Um well I'd owned records before this. Yeah. I owned uh, a couple of goodies records mm. and uh um never mind the presence by the Baron. Of course, yes. <laughs> but this is the first record that I bought with my own money. Mm. Um and I don't think I particularly liked it. I'm not even sure if I'd heard it when I bought it. Right. I just thought Oh, it's the Beatles. But <laughs> alas, whatever this is, it's most certainly not the Beatles. No. Incredibly, the album this is from, Tug of War, is actually half decent. And by half decent, I don't mean it's all right. I mean literally half. It's one of those albums where half the tracks are quite good mm. and the other half are total rubbish, like uh, Goat Said Soup or something, or yeah. Viva Hate. Um, and Macca's problem, really, or one of them, is that he's a naturally bright and sharp bloke who came of age in a period when daily dope smoking and woolly thinking were sort of de rigueur and feelings were prioritised over facts. And when he started talking, everyone shut up and listened, with the exception of the other Beatles. But uh, other than that, the entire world. So as he got older, he kept this idea of himself as a pretty clever and perceptive guy who didn't really need to check with anyone 
or update his thoughts, you know, even as things were moving on. And his cosy isolation increased. So by the age of 40, he thinks comparing human beings to inanimate blocks of hardwood, an elephant tusk, is in some way a useful or profound contribution to the endlessly awkward and complex conversation about racial prejudice. Uh, you know, I mean, most rock stars of that generation would just sort of fuck up for our amusement, you know. Uh, or they went deeper and deeper into themselves, which was usually boring, but easily ignored. But Paul doesn't want to go deeper into himself. He never has. It's why he was the last Beatle to try LSD. Um, it's why he's always surrounded himself with children and animals, right, to stave off introspection. Uh, and when occasionally he would be honest in early middle age, like the song Waterfalls, where uh, the chorus goes, I need love, and he sings it in a tone which suggests this is not just a pop cliche, this is the real Paul McCartney sort of opening up his soul and discovering the central fact of his being. Um, it's great. But no, here he's just wagging his finger. Um, and it's, yeah, it's it's disastrous. Around this time, in terms of racially mixed acts um, singing songs about racial harmony or the dangers of racial conflict, yeah. you had the specials, It Doesn't Make It All Right. Mm. You had The Beat. Two yes. shorts, or you had this, um, which you know it's for a different demographic. Let's be honest; it's incredibly syrupy, yeah. but it's aimed at getting that message to the sort of people who weren't buying um, early UB40 records. Um, uh, they were probably no. <laughs> wait, they, they couldn't wait to buy late UB40 records, but that's a whole different issue. Um, yes. So, yeah, I mean, the the lyrics are beyond trite. There is good and bad in everyone. I mean, yeah, there is good and bad in everyone, but it's about the ratios, isn't it? It's about the percentages. Come on. Mm. Um, you, <laughs> you you mentioned, you, you alluded to, uh, you you can do it right now, please. I, I actually see a bit of a foreshadowing <laughs> of that in this video, actually, because mm. that line I just quoted, there is good and bad in everyone. The first time uh, uh, round, um, it's McCartney who sings that line. The second verse, it's Stevie Wonder. Yeah. So Stevie Wonder sings "There's Good and Bad in Everyone," and Paul McCartney goes, "Hmm," <laughs> in a kind of in a kind of affirmative, yeah. um, you know, pseudo African American way. You know, he's just he's, he's saying "Preach, brother," mm. essentially to Stevie Wonder. Uh, we're going, mm. yes. And I, I don't know. I just saw that and I thought, God, yeah, that's that's you can do it right now, please. Waiting to happen. Um, yeah. The silhouette of the two people who appear to be black men doing the... Uh, High-fiving each other and stuff. Yeah. Giving each other some skin and everything. Do you think that might have been McCartney and Linda? <laughs> well, I just wondered why it's two black men. Surely the point of the message, it should be like... Exactly, like, yes. They, they yeah, should, one of them should have been in a bowler hat and with an umbrella. A bowler hat, yes, absolutely. Well, they try and get a sort of 50-50 racial mix because if you look at the video, there's uh, one Stevie Wonder... Uh, a load of black people and about 10 Paul McCartney's playing all yes. the instruments. He's reprised oh, yeah, the video for coming up, hasn't he? Coming up, yeah. yeah the the yeah. band he always yes. wanted. Yeah. <laughs> in terms of Stevie Wonder, where does this fit? Is Did he ever make a good record after this? Yes, he did. Or is, um, I just called to say I love you. Was that just around the corner? 
Or had it already happened? His next single uh, was Do I Do, which is fucking oh, yeah, brilliant. Fair point. That is very good. Yeah. 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 This is this is like the the year of Musiquarium, mm. so so this was just a bit of a He's lapse. Still got really, it. Just a slight kind of lapse into syrupy ballads for the sake of Paul. Yeah. Paul McCartney comes knocking. You're not going to say no, really, are you? You know. Well, well, if he's Stevie Wonder, you could. I suppose, but yeah, he's a nice guy. He is, and there, there was a mutual appreciation society between them two because yeah. uh, I think it was Red Rose Speedway. Uh, Paul McCartney had uh, the the back of the album uh, picked out in braille. And it just said, Stevie, we love you, baby, or something like that. I was going to tell a story about Stevie Wonder's favourite chocolate bar, but I can't remember what it was, so it's going to have to go now. Mm-hmm. But uh, <laughs> no, I, I, was, I, was, I was at the Motown Museum recently, and uh, we got a bit of a sort of um, private after tour because the guy took a liking to us, and uh, they showed us this, um, uh. this, this chocolate machine in, in, the, in the studio and uh, said that when they um, delivered the chocolate, when, when the guy came around every few weeks to fill up the chocolate machine... Uh, they could put whatever bar they wanted into whatever slot. It didn't really matter, except for this one um, chocolate bar that always had to go in the same column of the chocolate machine. And it was Stephen <laughs> Wonder's favourite chocolate bar because obviously he couldn't see. So he just they, they couldn't fuck around yeah. with it. They just had to leave it right there. I thought it was kind of sweet. Literally. Oh. Yeah. Leaving, even leaving aside the sort of terrible lyrics, this is just a terrible record. Um, the The worst thing about it is the instrumental break which sounds exactly like the music from Pages from CFAC. <laughs> um, it, I, you can't hear it without expecting to see, you know, multicolour, two-paragraph news reports. Yeah. And, uh, Reg the octopus. Yeah, and pictures made out of uh, magenta squares <laughs> and letters of the alphabet. Yeah. And it's his worst vocal on anything since Hold Me Tight. He sounds shit on it, you know. Also... This is the emergence of uh, uh, Fab Macca, Wacky Thumbs Aloft. Yeah. Um, he sort of emerges from his cool chrysalis here, <laughs> thumbs aloft and, and fingers pointing, ordering everyone around. Sort of simultaneously ingratiating and overbearingly bossy, you know. And he's going to be around for a while, so get used to him. This is one of those songs, uh, one of those McCartney records, which is, is a pillar of his record isn't it of having uh had had a number one record solo and then as a duo as a I don't, how's it work yes. solo duo trio quartet and, and, and a yeah. quintet or something like and also like a yeah. super group because he's on the b-side of band-aid yes. something like, there, there's some stat isn't there and was he on it, it was yeah. on a charity single as well wasn't he another one yeah ferry oh, yes there we go yeah so the following week, Ebony and Ivory was usurped by a little piece by Nicole, and it <laughs> fell to number two. Oh fucking hell! That yeah, because that was the Eurovision Song Contest yes, was the week was. before, and the German kids were going fucking mental that they won Eurovision. All us, all us British kids were looking at each other, going fucking hell. What's up with these lot? Swing your pants. Yeah, that song. It was followed up in McCartney's case by Take It Away, which got to number 15 for two weeks in August of this year, and in Wonder's case by Do I Do, which got to number 10 in June. Ebony and Ivory would spend seven weeks at number one in America, the second longest chart topper ever there for Macca, and the longest for Wonder. It didn't fix racism, though, did it? Seven weeks at number one in the States, and it didn't fix racism. In April of this year, an article on the USA Today website placed Ebony and Ivory in their listicle 20 politically incorrect songs that would be wildly controversial today. 
claiming that McCartney and Wonder meant well with their hyper-literal interpretation of race relations, but their message of people are the same, there's good and bad in everyone, so let's just get along, would be interpreted as hilariously naive by the more woke factions of today's cultural discourse. Fuck this century, I want my old one back. Stevie Wonder at number one, and will you welcome a megastar? It's Paul McCartney, ladies and gentlemen, on top of the pop. Hello. I was trying to work out just a moment ago when they told me you were coming on because you shouldn't really be here. You're on the way home, I know. How long is it since you've appeared on top of the pop? About eight years, I think. Eight years ago, which means it must have been what Wings and what was the number you did? It was Junior's Farm. Amazing. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. You're looking the pink. What have you been doing? Why are you here? Uh, we're on our way home. <laughs> been recording. Yeah, there is someone special you want to say hello to? Yeah, we'd like to say hello to Heather, who's just bust her leg. Get well soon, kid, OK? Now, you've got an amazing situation. You've got a number one in this country, you've got the number one album. Next week, it'll be number one around the world. We extend our congratulations, obviously. How do you follow that? Not easily. <laughs> Paul McCartney, thank you very much for coming on Top of the Pops. Fantastic. Wonderful. First time in eight years. Come back next week and the week after that. And we'll go out and wish you good luck and good night from Top of the Pops. See you next week. Here's Fun Boy 3 and Banana Rama. Bye. <laughs> Fucking hell, it's Paul and Linda McCartney who have swung by the top of the pop studio to essentially wave their cocks about over being number one. Fucking hell, they're all turning up tonight, aren't they? Yeah, doesn't he look ill as well? He looks very puffy. He's got a case of studio tan. Mm. Looks a bit boozy. Uh, but yeah, the mm. also him and Linda both seem very boppy and lip-chewy. Linda's mm. not on this record, yeah. of course. Wings have split up. So she's just yeah. there because she is his wife, basically. And Bates speaks to them the way that Bruce Forsyth used to speak to the contestants on the Generation <laughs> Game. Yes. Like Simon Bates talking to Paul yes. McCartney and Linda McCartney. Yeah. And he's like, he sort of gives Paul a bit of respect. And then he turns to Linda and goes, how are you? You all right? You okay there? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Speak your brain, peasant. You know. And there's also that chilling moment where uh, Paul turns to the camera and says, just want to say hello to Heather, who's just bust her leg. <sighs> Get well soon, kids. Yeah, okay. spooky. Yeah, that's a... Oh, man. Yeah, that is freaky, isn't it? Yeah. it well, it's, I mean, it's, it's actually Linda's yeah. child from a previous marriage to which he was, uh, he was yes. a new dad. But, yeah... It uh, hasn't aged well. It's funny how things turn out, right? Yeah. And eventually Bates signs off with really saying something by Bananarama and the Fun Boy 3. Formed in London in 1980, Bananarama consisted of two childhood friends, Sarah Dallin and Karen Woodward, and Siobhan Farhe, who was studying journalism at the London College of Fashion with Dallin. Their first single, Aia Moana, 
cover of the 1971 Black Blood tune, hung around the independent charts for much of the second half of 1981, which led to them being interviewed in The Face, which was read by Terry Hall, who had just left the specials with Linville, Golding and Neville Staple, and formed Funboy 3, and have just released their debut single, The Lunatics Have Taken Over the Asylum. They were drafted into back Funboy 3 for their next single, Taint What You Do, It's The Way That You Do It, which got in the charts in March of this month. While their latest single, The Telephone Always Rings, has only got to number 64 on its first week of release, Funboy 3 have repaid the favour, backing them on the cover of this 1964 Velvet's Motown single, which has been stuck at number 5 for two weeks on the bounce, and as the B-side instrumental, Give Us Back Our Cheap Fears, a critique of the GLC whacking the transport fees up. So... As the flags and balloons start going mental all over again, let's let's just get Funboy 3 out of the way first, because it isn't their song, but it's the first time we've had the chance to speak about them. Because for a very long time, I disliked Funboy 3 intensely for the simple fact that they weren't the specials anymore. I'm a bit less militant about them now, but there's still that little thing sticking in my yeah. craw. I mean, you know, 1982, I was still clinging on to Scar, Tito, yeah. and even though it's even though it's pretty much over, um, you know, that's that's I was still dressing like that, and even though I was into other bands like Dexys and the Human League and stuff like that, mainly mostly what, what I was listening to was was Two Tone Scar, and you know, these bands who were having uh, lower and lower chart positions with their records, but I was still quite loyal to them. So. When the specials broke up and, you know, these three went off and did their own thing, I, I was, yeah, I was quite, quite pissed off. I was, you know, much more upset that, you know, you mentioned Adam the Ants earlier. Well, fuck that. No, this was the one that really upset me. Yeah. It's like, come on, come on, guys, sort out your differences. Yeah, you, they because, still had plenty um, more in the tank, didn't they, the specials? They did, because more specials, the second specials album is a work of genius. Mm. Um, apparently Terry didn't like it very much, but there we go. Um, so... Uh, but once I got over that, I, you know, I, I threw myself into the whole Funboy 3 thing quite quite a lot. I, th- I thought they were great. Um, the, the kind of combination of that kind of quasi-African tribal uh, rhythms that, that um, they, they, they were digging into with um, Terry Hall's incredibly downbeat, paranoid um, uh, yeah. v- vocal style. Um I, I thought it worked really well on, on stuff like Telephone Always Rings and uh, More I See, Less I Believe. And, of course, you mentioned uh, Lunatics Taking Over the Asylum. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I was on board. I thought it's a shame that specials don't exist anymore, but I was basically on board with, with the project out of loyalty. Yeah. Um, and um, what they were trying to do here, of course, was, if you'll pardon the expression, give Banana Rama a leg up. Yes. Um, and they'd already done that because... It ain't what you do, it's the way you do it, it was Funboy 3 with Bananarama. Yes. Simon Bates gets it wrong here. Of course. He says, he says it's Funboy 3 and Bananarama. Yeah. No, this one's Bananarama with Funboy 3. So he screws that up. Well, at least he didn't say Funboy 3 with Scotland World <laughs> Cup. <laughs> it's Funboy 3 with the banana. <laughs> <laughs> but I was, I was so into Scar and Two-Tone that um, basically anything that was really tenuously related to mm. it, I, I would buy... Um, there was even um, a sort of sub shack attack um, funk pop band called Splashdown, yeah. whose singles I acquired just because uh, I think it was Linville Golding who mm. had produced them. 
um, that that's how, how far my kind of reach went in terms of completism with with two tone. So Banana Rama, they were totally in my world. Now that's it. They're, you know, they're another one of my groups because they've yeah. been officially endorsed by by um, by by Fanboy Three, mm. and I thought they were great. I thought they were really likable, mm. and obviously as a teenage boy, um, mm. I fancied them because you know mm. um, hormones raging. I think uh, to start off with, I was um, very much a Siobhan fan. Mm-hmm. Later on, I switched to Karen. Um, poor old Sarah was never anyone's favourite, oh. and um, I I did queue up in uh, uh, HMV Records in Cardiff to get a copy of Na Na Hey Hey Kiss and Goodbye yeah. signed by them, and was speechless with excitement to meet them. So mm-hmm. yeah, and I I thought this, even though I was quite I was getting into Motown, I didn't know this song yet, and I thought it's a really likable version they've done of it. It's mm. a little bit kind of almost. Um, abrasive and atonal at times because they 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 don't match the chords of the original mm. perfectly. It's it, so it it gives it a slight slight edge and um, yeah, I, I I thought it was great. Yeah, I was never particularly asked about Banana Rama. I mean, I did fancy them, but they were attractive without without being about the sex. That was even better because which was always nice because you could you know you think well I fancy you, but which makes me very different from everyone else because you know. They're not obvious. When, of course, they were bleeding obvious. But it, it's similar to, to, to what what um, what you guys were saying about Tracy Ullman on on a previous um, po- uh, previous podcast because it felt like they were one of us or three of us. They they had yes. got they had got the memo that it's the eighties and we don't do that cheesy stereotypical Rod Stewart girlfriend sexy stuff anymore. Yes, you know, which just made them even cooler and even more more attractive. Mm. Obviously. I mean, later on, they did, I mean, they did a lot of cover versions in their career and they did turn into she Waddle Roddy <laughs> a little bit, I think. I'm really surprised yeah. to hear you all saying that you fancied Banana Armour because I always thought kind of what was cool about Banana Armour was that people didn't really fancy them. They just thought they looked like they'd be a good laugh, you know what I mean? You just want to hang out with them. But, um, you know, you can fancy like someone was... and hang out and have a good laugh with them, Taylor, oh, surely. Oh, sure, sure, yeah, but I just, I, I've never met anyone. Who fancied Banana Well, you've met well two. Yeah, apart from Dave Stewart. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I know. I just thought they were they were cool because they obviously didn't take any of it seriously. Yeah. And I admire the enthusiasm of their dancing, despite their complete inability to dance at all. Yeah. They were um, essentially three Claire Grogans <laughs> with frizzier hair. Yeah. But I've also I've never really enjoyed the grey wash of their harmony singing. Mm. Um but on this record, it works because the arrangement is really sullen and the darkness of the sound contrasts really nicely with their voices, mm. you know, with that sort of rumbling undertow. It makes it a lot more arresting yeah. than any other yes. Banana Armor record. And authentically deep and sonorous sounds, you know, for a British record. Yeah. Um, although I totally agree with what you're saying about, you know, they seem like one of us. Like you, you, you look at this clip, and Ken Bailey is bopping yes. away, that fucking revenant. And <laughs> you, you, you look at that, and then you look at Banana Arm, and you think, no, 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 this is, I'm with these girls. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You can also see McCartney bopping away in the background. Yeah, from from the moment it starts, and um, and then pouting and signing autographs and stuff like that. And uh, it's interesting yeah. that that you mention uh, the B sides being. Uh, 
give us back our cheap fares. And it shows how pop had changed in in its kind of expectations of changing the world. It had gone from give Ireland back to the Irish yes. to give, give us back our cheap fares. Yes. Just kind of like narrow, sort of, you know, damping down your expectations a little bit. Yeah. And I do like the way the Fun Boy 3 are just sat there in the background while all this zoo contishness is going on and just practically looking at each other going, oh, fucking hell. But that's pretty much what Terry Hall looked like yeah. all the time. Yes, like bitch, yes. Not resting bitch face, resting bored face. Really. Yeah. Yes, definitely, yeah. What well, what we also get here are the credits. Yes. Uh, on which I noticed costume designer Odile Dix Miro. Wow. Who also worked on Doctor Who. In the early 80s, which I think explains a lot. Yes. Yeah. yeah, the other thing I noticed on the credits were Zoo, only five members of Zoo were credited, and they are Clive, Jule, Thomas, Tome, and Bunte. Fucking oh, yeah. hell, she is fucking Bunte. <laughs> so the following week, really saying something, dropped one place to number six. The follow-up. Shy Boy got to number four in July of 1982 and they'd go on to have seven more top ten hits until the end of the century and still hold the record for having the most chart hits in the world for an all-female group. Well, I remember them being interviewed in Smash Hits when they broke that record, uh, took it from the Supremes, and they were horrified and oh, shame-faced, which I thought was very charming. So what's on yeah. telly afterwards? Well, BBC One piles into a repeat of It Ain't Half Hot Mum, then Ronnie Corbett in Sorry, followed by the 9 o'clock news, then the espionage series Bird of Prey, Question Time, the first episode of the documentary series Fame with Trevor Locke, the hero of the Iranian embassy siege, and finishes off with the final episode of So You Want to Stop Smoking. BBC Two is running a short update on the World Snooker Championship. Then the documentary series Travellers in Time about explorers, more snooker than Call My Bluff featuring Victoria Wood and Timbrook Taylor. The 40 minutes documentary Heart Transplant. And then the Old Grey Whistle Test features performances from Kevin Ayers, Gang of Four and Spandar Ballet. Then Newsnight, more snooker and a Newsnight local election special. ITV is running the police sitcom Spooner's Patch, then Falcon Crest, then Janet Brown probably does fucking Kate Bush again in Janet and Company, then an episode of TVI on the Falklands Crisis, News at 10 and Hill Street Blues. So me boys, what are we talking about in the playground tomorrow? The sheer wrongness of the England team appearing in inappropriate surroundings yeah and even at that age what a fucking wanker B.A. Robertson really is (laughs) yeah he outdoes himself Uh, on that performance doesn't he I think I genuinely would have been really excited at that point to see so many footballers on top of the box it would have been um, both my worlds colliding in in a in a really exciting way yeah Um, but I would have been a bit unnerved by the absence of Dalgleish and what were we buying on Saturday? I, I did buy Banana Armour, Fanboy 3. Um, I think I should have bought um, Tight Fit, uh, Fancy Island. I've acquired it since. Mm. Um, but if I had bought it, it would be one of those ones that I didn't tell my mates. Yeah, off to Boots or WH Smith for that one, eh, Simon? Yeah, when, when no one's looking, yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, I, I was going to say uh, Patrice Russian and perhaps Fanboy 3 and Banana Armour. I say this, in fact, I bought Ebony and Ivory because I was 10. <laughs> And I had no idea what I was doing, so oh. fuck me, stupid kid. 
Actually, no, no, I was nine. Let's get this straight. Yeah. Right. And what does this episode tell us about May of 1982? I think it tells us that we, as in the ordinary people of Britain, um, our prospects are as fucked as those of the England and Scotland teams that we've seen before us. Because all of the flag-waving and all of the Ken Bailey bollocks tells us where the country's going in the next 12 months. Yeah. So there. Yeah, there is a yeah. sense. In the same way that you could still watch Top of the Pops in this <clears throat> period and have no idea what kind of crazy crap was going to come up next. There's a sense of that in the world as well, you know. You think this is mental. Just, just fucking wait. It's just strange that there is this massive crisis going on in the country and it's business as usual in the Top of the Pops studio. I'd love to know what the episode of Top of the Pops after Diana died was like, if they changed it in any way. I'm, and I'm guessing they did. I'm guessing they did because, you know, after she died, we had sombre music for fucking days on end on Radio 1 and all, all, the, all the other radio stations. Yeah, it's uh, fucking disgrace. Yeah. But here it's just like, yep, yeah, we're carrying on. The big yellow and red top of the Pops flags flown at half-mast. No, yeah. <laughs> Black armbands on Zoo. I think this reaction uh, in 1982 is far better than re- the reaction in 1997 and in all years since. So, yeah, it it's a weird one. Mm. And that, Pop Craze Youngsters, is the end of another episode of Chart Music. All that remains for me to do now is the usual shit www.chart-music.co.uk www.facebook.com slash chartmusicpodcast and you can reach us on Twitter chartmusictotp Thank you very much Simon Price You're welcome God bless you Taylor Parks Oh yes My name is Al Needham and Margaret Thatcher is still in hell being fisted by giant crabs wearing (laughs) Arthur Scargill wigs Rejoice at that news Sharp music. Chances at this time looks pretty slim. Norway had just beaten us 2 1. And so joined Switzerland as proud victors over England, the 66 World Cup winning country. The magic month of June didn't just seem nine months away, but more like a hundred years.
and Spain, just the short two-hour plane journey away, might as well have been on the other side of the moon. It seemed even worse when you considered that we'd already appeared to come back from the dead once with a terrific 3-1 away win over Hungary that summer. Alas, now this all seems an eternity away. We were staring at this sad but true fact of life. To be sure of qualifying, not only did we need to beat Hungary for a second time, but also had to pray that Switzerland could take at least two points out of four against Romania. team who'd already taken three points against us. But, and a very important but, as Bob Paisley says, there are still 90 minutes in every game of football. cliff-hanging climax was one that I don't even think Alfred Hitchcock could have come up with. Switzerland beat Romania 1-0 in Bucharest. And then followed this by holding them to a draw in the return game. All we had to do now was to hold Hungary, who'd already qualified, to a draw in our last game. The match was at Wembley on the 18th of November and the crowd really got behind us. Paul Mariner scored what was to be the only goal of the game. We were through. For the first time in 12 years, England had qualified for the World Cup Finals. Now, Spain, which just a short while ago seemed so far away, was firmly in our sights. I know that we didn't qualify in the way we would have liked, but hopefully that's in the past. Now, like the other 23 teams who are in the finals, we're looking firmly to the future. And yes, we think that this time we'll get it right.
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.